Folks, I hope you're sitting down for this one. Prepare to have your mind blown with Dr. Valerius Geist. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Here we go. This is uh, episode number 42 of the Western Huntsman podcast. My name is Jim Huntsman coming at you from the Broken Tine studio in Hayden, Idaho. Uh, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, super glad you're here. I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, I'm going to tell you about this guest here in just a minute. Uh, but as, as we get into this, this is this is a, a really good conversation about ungulates and deer and elk and moose and uh, white tails versus mule deer and how they coexist and, and how they can coexist. And also a very, the, the, the ever so sensitive topic of wolves and the reintroduction of wolves onto the landscape and what it does to our public lands and our wildlife and how they can be balanced to, if they can be balanced and, and why people need to be paying attention to this to fight against the wolf activism, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty prevalent out there. So this is going to be a great conversation along those lines. So with, with that said, I want to throw out, um, I, I'm not totally sure how I'm going to do this, uh, but uh, but there's I want to like have some prizes and stuff. But uh, it, I'm going to do like some trivia questions here. And the, and the first one being is, can you guys tell me what animal on North America has like a horn antler combination? They're not exactly antlers, they're not exactly horns, but they do drop, and they're the only ungulate that does this. On the continent. In fact, it's the only ungulate that drops its what could be defined as horns on a yearly basis in the world. If you write to me, Jim at the Western Huntsman.com, uh, your answer, and tell me what animal that is, you're, I'm going to enter everybody into kind of like a drawing, and we're just going to we're going to keep this going, and I'm going to get a bunch of names into a drawing, and and we'll have some prizes here. Uh, towards uh, towards Thanksgiving or so. So I think it'll be kind of fun. Plus, it helps people learn. Uh, hopefully, you're out there, you know, you look this stuff up. You can, I, I you know, it's kind of cheating when you Google it, but that's really the way to learn. So jump on there and figure out what animal is it that has like a combination of, of horns and antlers. They're not exactly horns. They're not exactly antlers. They're like this combination uh, but because they are a horn, they are the only horned animal to drop those horns on a yearly basis. And they are here in North America. So let me know what you think. What is your answer? Jim at the Western Huntsman.com. And uh, we're going to we're going to have some uh, names going into a hat for a drawing here in a couple of months because I'm going to put like I'm probably going to do this on every episode, put out some uh, some trivia questions. And, and it's just a, kind of an effort to, yeah, you know, have a little fun and learn something. It's what it's all about, right? So, oh, uh, before before I introduce the guest today, uh, I want to let you guys know, after like weeks of headaches and trying to get this, it was just a struggle getting this thing put together, but I finally have the store up 
and running on the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Go to the store tab, and we've got swag items like T-shirts and coffee cups, and we've got uh, tank tops uh, and bibs, and just all. Just go check it out if you guys are interested in that, and and you want to purchase something like that. Uh, it, it sure helps us here at the show and I appreciate it. And if you find something you like and you're interested, you know, check it out and buy it. And, uh, if not, no big deal, but I, I just appreciate you guys checking it out. So, uh, looking forward to seeing how that kind of unfolds and, uh, I, I have no idea what I'm doing with it, but we, we just finally got it started and, uh, those items are available. And if you guys do purchase one, I personally really appreciate it. And, and thank you guys for the support. So either way. Uh, check that out. That's at thewesternhuntsman.com. Okay, so today I have got, this is why, and I'm going to keep this intro super short because uh, the conversation is long and there is a lot of action-packed information in there that I think all hunters should know. And so today's guest, his name is Dr. Valerius Geist. You probably know him. You, if, if you don't know him, uh, he is the author of the North American Model of Conservation and he has also authored multiple, multiple books. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he has done it over the years. Uh, he's just got tons of content out there. Uh, some of My favorite book that I think that, that Dr. Geis has written and put out there is Mule Deer Country. And it's a great, if you hunt mule deer, you should read this book. It's not a, a how-to hunt. It's not, it's not about hunting per se. It, it is a it's kind of like an ecological book on mule deer. You will learn all sorts of things about mule deer. And the more you know about these animals that we pursue, the more successful you're going to be. He also wrote a book called Elk Country. He's written books on moose and, and sheep and goats and, and all sorts of different um, species. And, and even he's in the process of writing something on wolves. Uh, he's just an amazing man. Dr. Valerius Geist gets it, and he gets it because he pays attention, and he he has spent decades coming to these conclusions without bias, and that's an important side. This is not a, a man that comes at these issues through some kind of a, a emotional way. He comes at them through a fact-based, research-backed uh, process. Uh, the, the, the actual scientific method is used in this case. So this isn't just a bunch of gibberish. It's not a bunch of rubbish. This is real information based on real science, and the man knows what he's talking about, and I highly respect him. And I, I was honored and humbled to have him on the show. He's just a fantastic human being. Uh, in fact, I, I've just, I'd love to have him back on because I, I've got so, listening to him, it, it, it brought so many more questions uh, for me on on the topics that we talk about. So we talk about two real main things. The first one being is if you're familiar, especially if you're like in the in the North Idaho area or Eastern Washington or uh, Western Montana, you you may have noticed the the decline in mule deer and and the the increase in whitetail populations because that's that's generally what what'll happen is the whitetail have a tendency to come in and kind of kind of push the the mule deer out of their their habitat. Well, Dr. Geist and and his student uh, from years ago have come up with a solution to this problem, and, and we we touch on this and we talk about it, and it's it's very interesting. Uh, and then we kind of turn the tables and and we discuss the the issue of wolves, the ever so sensitive topic that <laughs> that I'd mentioned earlier, wolves, having them reintroduced into onto our public lands in Canada and 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 the states. Um, Colorado was dealing with this initiative this year. 
and it's on the ballot, I believe. Uh, this is going to be a major, major discussion for you guys, my friends down in Colorado. Uh, you need to pay attention to this conversation. And this is not, a, you know, we hate wolves and don't want anything to do with them. This is a wolves are an amazing animal, but here's why. Uh, they're not necessarily a great thing to have introduced onto our landscapes and our public lands and into our national parks. Um, Dr. Geist has uh, a, a, a very unique perspective and a lot of very good insight on this topic. You're going to want to listen to this. It's a long conversation, and I highly recommend you listen to the whole thing. Uh, we go a little over over two hours or so, so uh, but it's worth it. Worth it, guys, I promise. Listen, <laughs> listen to it and... Um, uh, if, uh, if, if let me know what your thoughts are on this episode. This is an important episode for me, and so I'd, I'd love to get your feedback after you've listened to it. What do you think? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have another take on it? Do you have do you have thoughts of your own that that you'd like to share? Uh, I'd love to hear from you guys on on that. Uh, so it's always great uh, getting email emails from you guys. So shoot me an email. Give me your feedback at Jim at thewesternhuntsman.com um, on on this episode. Let me know what you think. So. Uh, with, the, with that being said, guys, a very, very warm welcome to Dr. Valerius Geist, and the the information that he brings to the table is invaluable to us as hunters and outdoorsmen. Um, with that said, let's get Dr. Geist on. Guys, have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Here we go. Everybody on the line today, I am uh, honored to have Dr. Valerius Geist um, on on the show. And Dr. Geist has the kind of resume that it would take an entire episode to to cover. And so, if if you're not familiar with Dr. Geist, what, one of the things, or, or a lot of the things that you could really focus on in terms of his history and his background, and and uh, you know, essentially credibility on the topics that we're going to be talking about. He is one of the authors of the North American Model of Conservation, which is a fantastic thing, and uh, I'm so glad you were involved with that and helped helped uh, all of us in North America uh, adopt this model uh, that that we know so well today. Um, and Dr. Geis has been a professor. He is a uh, wildlife be. Would you would you define it, Dr. Geist, as wildlife behavioralist, biologist? Well, yes. Uh, <clears throat> I am originally a zoologist, and I studied animal behavior. That's what I did my PhD on, and I did also a postdoctoral um, study in Germany, and that's where I wrote my first book on mountain sheep, mm-hmm. which was uh, awarded the Deer Book of the Year award by the Wildlife Society, which was very nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm a zoologist, but then I became a professor of environmental science because I was asked to establish a um, program of environmental science, a graduate program at the University of Calgary within the Faculty for Environmental Design. So there was a, one line was architecture, the other one was urbanism, and the third one was environmental science, and then we added uh, industrial design to that. So I am right now technically a retired professor. My title is Professor Emeritus of Environmental Science. This is fantastic. Okay. And and so and and just so you guys know, 
I'm I'm in the Broken Time studio here in Hayden, Idaho, and Dr. Geist is is at home um, on Vancouver Island. Tell us a That's little correct. bit about where you live. Well, I'm living a little bit away from the from the traffic uh, in the center of the island. I'm just north of Port Alberni, and uh, I have here a little acreage that my wife bought when I was away in Salt Lake City at a conference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, she made a wonderful choice, an absolutely wonderful, wonderful choice. Good. <laughs> and uh, so I have two salmon streams crossing my property. Uh, when we first came, this was an absolute wildlife paradise. And then a few things happened. Amongst other things, we had um, the appearance of two wolf packs here, which we were able to observe in great detail what was ha- happening going on. It was surprising to me because uh, these wolf packs behaved so unusual and uh, I had, at the same time, contacts with some very, very good people uh, that were studying wolves. So uh, one thing led to another, and I became quite interested in wolves. We'll be talking about that later, I gather. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's going to be, I think, the lion's share of this, this discussion is wolves. Well, you wanted um, to speak about uh, mule deer and white-tailed deer I do, and how yep. they interact. And we did some very interesting work at the University of Calgary on that. At least I think it was interesting. Yeah. And, uh, yes, we have a pretty good idea what is happening uh, and what can be done to reverse uh, the, um, uh, the loss of, of mule deer, basically. Yeah, I think that's going to be a really white-tailed- good topic because uh, we, yeah. we've got – I'm in I'm – in, so I'm in the panhandle of North Idaho – and it's oh, a great representation as to uh, th- this is an area that used to be filled with mule deer, and now it's yeah. primarily white-tailed deer. In fact, That's when correct. we when we do a uh, you know what we we have the mule deer foundation banquets up here, yeah. and when when I, I notice that when they're getting promoted, everybody kind of laughs it off as like you know there's no mule deer. Uh, up no, here. no, it's this is no laughing tail. matter. Exactly, this is no laughing matter. It's not. I'll guarantee you that because and, and the reason we were interested in this matter is. Because the mule deer uh, used to be found all through Manitoba, in, in, uh, that is in Canada, the north of the 48, and they vanished all, completely almost. The only place they were left in Manitoba was about 150 mule deer in some of the hand sandhill country, and that is it. And then they began to disappear across much of Saskatchewan as well. Mm. And, uh, well, we uh, let's, let's start on this matter because this is a serious matter. What happens is that when whitetail and mule deer meet, and um, we have a hunting policy in place that removes the large mule deer bucks, then you, had one, you get one-way hybridization, and that is big whitetail bucks breed mule deer does. The mule deer does give birth to a uh, half mule deer, half whitetail, and that is a combination that doesn't work. They don't survive. Uh, in nature, that is. You can, they survive beautifully in captivity, but they don't survive in nature mm-hmm. because they have neither uh, the escape strategy and tactics of the whitetail nor that of the mule deer. It's a hapless mixture, and they are uh, prime. Uh, they are very, very quickly removed by uh, wolves or, in fact, by anything. Is that, that yeah. is that a lot to do with um, when you wrote a really good book called Mule Deer Country? And, uh, yes. I. I it's it's like a a very it's a solid reference book for anybody that doesn't have this book you got to get this book. Um, you you talk about in the book um, the the way that the mule deer they do this thing called stotting, 
and they yes, and, correct. And that's, and that's basically for anybody who's ever hunted a mule deer. When you spook, spook a mule deer, they they leap and they bound, they they kind of hop out of out of uh, danger. Yeah. Versus yeah, like that's a white right. tail. The mule just, deer is adapted. The mule deer is adapted uh-huh. to yep, yep. run very very quickly across broken terrain and take very very steep hills in the process. The white tail buck, however, is uh, geared for high speed running. He has the rotary gallop. And he maximizes speed along uh, runways, which the mule deer does not. Mm-hmm. So the mule deer, the whitetail avoids obstacles, whereas the mule deer seeks them out. Because by seeking out the obstacles and jumping over top, he puts a barrier behind him that the wolf or the coyote or whatever it is uh, has to overcome in order to catch him. It kind of breaks so up their scent and everything. That, well, well, <laughs> does all sorts of things. As a matter of fact, we'll discuss that in a little bit detail because this is quite crucial to what is uh, going on. But this is a serious problem. Don't you ever, ever underestimate it. Mm -hmm. And the um, uh, I'm very, very happy to say that in the prairie provinces, certainly in Alberta, the management now is such that the mule deer will survive. By the way, when the mule deer and whitetail exist side by side naturally uh, in some of our military reserves, for instance, yeah, mm-hmm. they do just fine. They both live side by side. The tr- trouble begins when large mule deer bucks are scarce, and there are only small mule deer bucks guarding the does. Because at that point, big whitetail bucks uh, usurp. Uh, they come in and they chase away the mule deer buck and they breed the doe. And at the same time, um, the if you have any um, uh, not only hunting pressure, but if you have um, harassment of the um, mule deer, though they run into cover. And that is exactly where the whitetail buck is king at the present, uh, at any time. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the way things start going apart is when you have uh, heavy hunting pressure on mule deer, you remove the big bucks, the big whitetail bucks come in, they begin breeding the mule deer does, the mule deer does produce a non-viable hybrids, and the mule deer population goes downhill. Okay, okay. And the only place where they survive naturally, where whitetails and mule deer, even under uh, some of the worst conditions, is in steep sand hills and somewhere along river um, uh, breaks with very, very steep hillsides. And the reason for that is the following. When the whitetail buck begins courting, the whitetail buck tends to chase the female. The female runs away. Now, when the female... Whitetail runs away. She uses a rotary gallop, and she runs along trails that are there, and the whitetail follows her lickety-split. When the mule deer starts running away from a mule deer buck, she tries to, uh, from a whitetail buck, pardon me, she tries to search out a steep hill, and then she uh, stops up that hill, just like a jackrabbit running straight up the hill, and that's where the whitetail buck cannot follow. The whitetail buck has a rotary gallop, and he cannot do this. He can only tangentially run uh, along that hill. Mm-hmm. But the mule deer, though, goes over top. Now, in sandhill country, which has low vegetation, another factor kicks in. And that is during the uh, rutting season, big mule deer bucks tend to go onto elevated uh, locations and are able to watch what is going on in the countryside. So if a mule deer doe uh, runs away from a whitetail buck in the sandhills, she pops out over top, and she will be noticed by a big um, mule deer buck. He'll run over he'll take over, and the white tail has no chance again. So this is the uh, mechanism by which the 
uh, mule deer is able to survive and continue to thrive, that's why they are still in Manitoba, in Sandhill Country. Not very many, because there's not many Sandhill Country left. The Sandhill Country is the sand dunes left over from the big pro-glacial lakes that mm-hmm. used to exist during the Pleistocene uh, in the prairies at the present time. So uh, the, the problem is that the anti-predator behavior of the hybrid is completely destroyed. I'll, give you, uh, I'll uh, tell you what experiments we did. Okay. We, uh, we, had a, we made a runway, and we played obstacles, places obstacles into the runway. So if you chase a whitetail through that, um, that whitetail comes at a high speed, elegantly jumps over top of each obstacle, and he tucks in the legs very closely, and he just slides barely over top at high speed, lands on the other side and continues, and then he takes the next obstacle. When the mule deer comes, he comes starting. He jumps over the first obstacle, over the second obstacle. But that time, he's jumping so high, he flies sometimes right over the eight-foot fence as well. Now, if you take a hybrid, what happens is they try to jump like a white tail over just barely missing the obstacle. But they leave their feet, their legs dangling down like a mule deer. So the net result is they hit the obstacle and spill over and hit their nose on the ground on the other side, and they cannot do anything different. It happens again and again and again and again. Yeah, I heard you talk about that on... uh, So that's number one. Number two is when the, um, the, the mule deer can gallop almost as fast as the whitetail. They're very, very fast, but not just, not quite. When you have a hybrid and you film them, you can see that their, their uh, way of running, uh, galloping, is somewhat different from the white, from the, uh, the white tail or the mule deer, pardon me. And it is a mixture that winds up in such a fashion that they are quite slow during the gallop. So hmm. the white tail will gallop away very fast, the mule deer will be just behind it, but the hybrid is way behind because wow. it just cannot run fast enough. Okay? Okay, yeah, no, that uh, makes sense. This, Okay, the third one is the anti-predator behavior. Well, you probably know that um, uh, mule deer does quite readily attack coyotes. Yes. I've seen oh, it. yeah, they really do a good job. Yep. White-tailed does run away. And where white-tailed does and mule deer are together and calving in similar terrain, actually the white-tailed does benefit from the presence of the mule deer doe because the mule deer does do attack coyotes quite sharply and are effective. So what we did was we were working with tame um, deer in a very, very large enclosure within Calgary at the Zoological Garden. And we brought in on a leash a big, big, big dog, which was very, very eager to get at the deer. Well, the moment the whitetails saw us coming, they ran away very quickly and uh, into hiding. They were gone. Mm-hmm. The mule deer did something quite different. They, first of all, gathered together as a group, and uh, then they came running. Then they would surround us, and one of them would jump over top of the dog, and then another would jump over top of the dog, and in the process, all of a sudden, whack, the dog would get a real good smack. And I can tell you one thing. Those damn big dogs were between our legs in no time flat. They were so scared of what they were experiencing. Now, what the hybrid did was something quite different. 
the hybrid would stop, see us coming, walk towards us, stop a few feet away, broadside. And with the dog? Yeah, with the dog. Huh. That's right. And so, they, so they're they just a lot more susceptible that way. Well, and that's what, a, what we're showing you is that the mule deer, but the hybrid, has a completely screwed up anti-predator behavior and is therefore not viable. Okay. And there is another factor, and that is we noticed that in the wilds, hybrids would show up at the yearling age. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, they would be gone, but they survived at least as yearlings. And why did they survive at least as yearlings? Well, because they were adopting as yearlings, uh, while they were still uh, young and calves, they adopted the strategy of the, of the mule deer female, of their mother. And what mother mule deer does is the following. They have very big ears, and they become aware of, for instance, if you go and uh, slowly hunt up a valley, you can see how mule deer in the distance have discovered you, and they leave the countryside well before you arrive there, which is not what the whitetail does. The whitetail will dodge and uh, will be hiding, and all of a sudden, kerbush, here is the big buck bouncing out a few feet in front of you and charging off at high speed. Well, as long as the hybrid is with its mother, it follows what the mother does, and it survives. But when it is kicked away, when the next offspring is born and this yearling hybrid is all in itself, he does the following. If, he is, if you walk along, he will suddenly stand up. In other words, he will hide like a white tail. Then he will stand up like a mule deer and just look at you. Wow. And then walk away. And what happens when that happens with a coyote? You can imagine that yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we did a fairly thorough uh, investigation. It was uh, Dr. Susan Lingle who did most of the work, and she then continued working with the mule deer and, uh, and whitetails in southern uh, Alberta. She's a professor at the University of Manitoba at the present time. She did marvelous work. And so uh, the, uh, the, the solution to the problem is that you have to manage in such a fashion that you always maintain a good reservoir of big, big mule deer bucks. And that's how – well, <laughs> actually, can we back up for just a minute – um, sure. what, what we didn't really cover is why is it that when whitetails start moving into mule deer habitat, it has such yeah. a negative impact on mule deer? Well, it has a negative. First of all, uh, when the, t- the two can live side by side, they do not compete really very much ecologically. They're fine. Okay. It's when you have this breakdown in breeding happening. It's when you lose due to hunting, for instance, the mm-hmm. big mule deer bucks, that's when the hybridization, one-way hybridization kicks in, and that's when the mule deer population begins to crash very quickly. So in, in the because studies that – did you say her name was Dr. Linda – Dr. Susan Lingo. Lingo, okay. Dr. Dr. Yeah. Lingo. You, you had mentioned that the, the, they had found a way to reverse this, and, and essentially yeah, – what what is that what does that process look the, like? The the reversal is that you hunt mule deer very conservatively, that you make sure that you have always four point bucks around and about, and uh, that maintains the mule deer quite nicely. That's okay. exactly what happens in uh, uh, your military reservations. You can uh, you can you can see that. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that, so so it's pretty. That's, actually, it's, it's a pretty simple. <laughs> simple. Uh, yes, it is simple. It's a, uh, the trouble is that <laughs> that we haven't really implemented that too frequently. Mm-hmm. That uh, the uh, there is no real sort of competition for food or anything of that nature, and um, some very funny thing happens because whitetail females, for instance, prefer to associate with mule deer bucks believe it or not. But there is no, there's virtually no hybridization. The hybridization that takes place 99 out of 100 times is that of the um, mule deer female being bred by a big white-tailed buck. Gotcha. Hmm. So th- this is really interesting. And, and, and can we, to, to back up quite a bit further, when sure. we, I, to get to the kind of the root of mule deer and where mule deer uh, kind of, you know, where, where, what, how we got mule deer on the continent is, is, has your opinion changed well, mule- at all as to how that developed when, when whitetail are moving west, blacktail are moving east, they come together, they create a hybrid that kind of evolves into this mule deer thousands of years ago, and this is what we yes, know today. That, that is, that's a very good point. And the, yes, indeed, because what you have, what you've had to deal with here in North America is the destruction of the megafauna. By the uh, by, human beings uh, mm. after they came in here. Mind you, the human beings had a her- very very terrible time here for the first two thousand years or so, and then they developed a miracle weapon with which they were able to kill the megafauna. And the miracle weapon was the uh, Clovis or the uh, Folsom um, point, mm. which is a very sharp blade mounted on a detachable head and then soaked in um, poison most likely aconitum, which is a very, very deadly plant poison mixed with uh, rattlesnake poison, which is necessary in order to open up the blood vessels in order to allow the poison to spread. But with that thing, they were able to kill off very, very quickly the megafauna. It lasted only about 500, 600 years. The same thing happened in South America. So once they developed this um, uh, super weapon, because that is what it is, yeah, uh, it took them a long time to do it, but they did it finally. Uh, what was left behind were some of the uh, tough types, which were the black tails and the white tails. And yes, indeed, you're correct. The, one of them was moving to the west. That would be the um, uh, the white tail. As a matter of fact, the white tails are right now at the gate of Alaska, for that matter. They're way up in the Yukon Territory, way up in the Northwest Territories, mm-hmm. and they're huge mm-hmm. bucks, by the way. I know. And it, <laughs> Yes, indeed. And uh, the black tails from the coast were moving uh, east. And yes, there was a hybridization event. And out of that hybridization event arose the mule deer. And the mule deer runs on white-tail deer mitochondrial DNA. And his mitochondrial DNA is more similar to that of <clears throat> the white tails <clears throat> you find today in Georgia and the uh, extreme east than it is in the west. So they're quite different. So this was an ancient, ancient hybridization uh, so yes, you're right. Okay. Mule deer are a hybrid deer, and they came out of uh, father was a blacktail, and mother was a, 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 a whitetail deer. Do you have any data or, or research in the past on, on maybe a hybridization between mule deer and blacktail uh, today? Yes, that does take place. No, oh, that's that, that, that's not. Uh, this is no dispute. This is quite common mm-hmm. in the uh, zones in British Columbia, for instance where the hybrids, where the mule deer come from the east 
and the uh, black tails come from the west. There is a hybrid zone between them also. Yeah. Hmm. It's a hybridized country regularly. Do those hybridized deer? Do they do they kind of have the same issue in terms of they they can make no, it to a year? No, 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 no. They see, they seem to uh, where the hybridization occurs is usually in, in mountain country and in deeply forested country. Okay. And we have okay. some uh, another little discovery that has to be followed up yet. Uh, I noticed, uh, and as I said, this has not been followed up yet that the mule deer in British Columbia appear to have very small eyes compared to mule deer out in the prairies. The mule deer in the prairies have eyes just as big as pronghorn antelope have, and uh, uh, I've measured that, those out, whereas those from the interior of British Columbia are quite small, and the answer appears to be that the mule deer there live in forested mountains <clears throat> in which there is virtually no open space available, uh, whereas the, the mule deer in the prairies, of course, do have open spaces. And yes, it has shown itself that uh, it would be a very nice research project to carry out. So yeah. far, it's a hypothesis, but these are my observations. I have skulls to back back this up. Yeah, yeah. So, just as as kind of a, I don't you know to, to as we kind of wrap up this this part of the conversation. Um, yes. Essentially, the whitetails and and the mule deer. Are, they, they can coexist on the same landscape as long yes, as... Yes, they can coexist very nicely. That's yes, right. as long as you've got mature mule deer bucks to protect Correct. the, the, the mule right. deer does, essentially. So, Correct. Um, yeah. Okay, that's, that, you know what, that, uh, that answers a lot of questions for me. I, I'm really excited okay. to get that information. I've, I've wondered okay. about how did, right. how did you get so... Uh, you, you're not just one of those... There's a lot of folks out there that whether they're 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 a research scientist or or they're a biologist working for the the Forest Service, that could be really, well, I don't want to go there. Let me put it to you this way: you're very passionate about this. How, where did that come from? Well, first and foremost, I've lived a good part of my life, in my early life, that is, in the wilderness areas, and uh, I'm don't uh, get me wrong, I'm a hunter. Oh, I know. I'm not yeah. just simply somebody who observes. I got to the stage with mountain sheep where the mountain sheep were trying to, the females, uh, the ewes were trying to retain me, prevent me from leaving in the evening, whereas the males attacked me. So <laughs> I got very, very close to them. And uh, yes, I'm passionate about uh, wildlife and I'm passionate about ecology. And uh, you will hear this again. We were talking about wolves because what we're doing here is something very anti-ecological, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But we'll we'll get to to that in a moment. But uh, to let you know, I studied um, for eight years uh, mule deer in Waterton National Park. I was able to get some time off in fall, which was wonderful. Uh, fall was a very busy season for me. I had to teach. I had to observe uh, animals, and I had to do a bit of hunting as well. But um, I studied their mule deer, and uh, amongst other things, I also discovered there's something else that hunters can be uh, interested in. I discovered that shirkers uh, do really exist in mule deer uh, populations. A shirker is a big, big, big buck that does not breed. Huh. He is a big buck that is avoiding um, other mule deer, and I know that very well because these bucks are completely tame. I could follow them a few feet away, and so I could observe just how, for instance, they if they noticed um, another buck horning somewhere in the distance, 
they would make a point of moving away. Or if they would come to the edge, they were usually in hiding. They, they tried to hide themselves most of the time. When they came to the edge of a um, Aspen Bluff and looked outside, and there was a deer, they right away reversed themselves and came back. Now, these big bucks were tame. I could sit beside them, mm-hmm. you see? Mm-hmm. And I also discovered um, how one of these bucks became a shirker. He was a four-year-old male, and he got into a fight with a 12-year-old big buck. And the big buck, they have a very nice way of uh, jabbing their antlers together, then twisting them and locking them. And then the big buck lifted the smaller buck and threw him over through the air, over his own back, oh, wow. into a bunch of, um, uh, well, there were some broken down aspen trees, and that's where the buck crashed into. And he quit running at that point. The, the and the following, or the four-year-old. Yeah, the little fellow. The, yeah, well, he was not that little, actually. He was quite a big buck already. But he was a four-year-old, and he quit rutting at that point. And he quit rutting the following year. And he didn't rut the following year either. And now he was a monstrosity. Because what happens with the shirker is the shirker saves all the energy that he accumulates in summertime and usually blows it during the rutting season, mm-hmm. except he doesn't blow it. He goes nice and fat into the winter. He has a splendid rate of survival. And in the following year, when the antler growth begins, he's in perfect shape, and he has a head start in body and antler growth. The net result is huge antlers and huge bodies. So after two or three, four years of shirking, you've got a monster standing yeah. there. Yeah, and wow. then. And then this shirker quit shirking. He turned around and he bred everything in sight. Huh. He was a 150% successful buck. Yeah? So when he's still a shirker, uh, prior to yeah. him turning around and running, um, yeah. w- will he protect the, the, the mule deer does against the whitetail bucks at that point? No, 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 all no. Of them? no, no. He's just simply, he, he's very selfish. Oh, okay. All he does is he rests and feeds and hides, yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And you don't see you don't see the shirkers readily. They are a, they are very rarely poke their nose outside of the hiding. So I knew three of them. So this is one interesting. You see, this phenomenon of shirking was used um, very very effectively by the um, uh, manager of the Red Deer Estate in Rominton, Germany, that was the hunting territory of Hermann Göring. Mm-hmm. And Forstmeister Freyfurt, um, in order to increase the antler size and the body size, changed the sex ratio of the uh, deer around in such a fashion that instead of having one f- female to one male, he had 1.8 males to one female. The result was that the young ba- uh, stags quit rutting completely. They were hog fat. They joined company with one another. They were peaceful. They didn't even develop this uh, spot from, made from urine and semen uh, on their belly. And uh, it's only the really big males got into the competition. So after a few years, he had, a tre- he had exactly what I've described, tremendous increase in body size and a disproportionately larger increase in antler size. And so that Hermann Goering shot the biggest uh, stag that was taken in 300 years in Europe. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's the shirking <laughs> phenomenon I, I applied 
that's the shirking phenomenon applied in reality by a very, very bright man. This was Forstmeister Freifert in Germany. Huh. That, and that's that's another interesting part about you, Dr. Geis, is, is you're not just some regional uh, – you have world-renowned credibility on these on these topics. Uh, you, you've studied in Europe, you've studied in in Canada, United States, and and I'm probably missing more areas. And so, uh, no, I'm very much interested in Canada, but uh, I have been active in. I've tried to maintain my contact to Europe, and uh, I have. I'm, I'm being published right now quite extensively in Europe right now, not so much in the states, but in Europe, uh, which is another interesting phenomenon. But uh, yes. And it is a bit of a difficult thing because, well, I'll give you a simple one. You spoke about the North American model of wildlife conservation. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm the original author of that. But the way it came about was when we had here a great enthusiasm for deer farming. And I opposed that for what we now for very good reasons, of course. And I was speaking with two colleagues from the Canadian Wildlife Service, senior colleagues about to be retired. And I said, for heaven's sake, what you are doing in supporting deer farming is you're destroying your own system of wildlife conservation. And both of them shot back and said, what system of wildlife conservation? We have no system of wildlife conservation. I said, you damn well have one. I'll write it down for you. And I did. <laughs> and so what year was that? About That would have been about 1983, 84. Okay. And so, so you that conversation – you, you take yes. that conversation, and you, at that point, did you just kind of sit down and author the no, seven? No, uh, wait a second. You see, I was familiar with the, the European model. Uh-huh. And the, if you take the seven pillars of the North American model and reverse them 180 degrees each, you have the Central European model of wildlife conservation. Both models work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yours is a different one. And... Uh, uh, as, as I said, when I um, sat down and wrote it down, I simply showed how different the North American model was from the European model. It's the opposite, in basically, in many regards. It's a magnificent model, but it's in the process right now of uh, being destroyed by a rather malignant environmentalism, unfortunately. I, I, and, I, I uh, agree with that. I agree. And I, yeah, I want and that you to be will part have of the conversation. You, and by the way, uh, when we come to wolves, let me say, if, if you had not exterminated wolves in the lower 48, there would never have been a North American model. And as you recolonize the 48 with wolves, as you replace the little wolf, which is the coyote, with a big wolf, yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to destroy completely the system of North American uh, wildlife conservation, completely. Okay, so this is, this, is a good, this is a good point to kind of transition into, into that topic. And and yes. before we do that, what what I want to say, not so much to you, Doctor Geist, but to the audience, is I have I have uh, I have been familiar with Doctor Geist in his work and his writings, uh, his his talks for a very long time. And and one of the things that uh, I am always cautious of when when we get into some of these more difficult topics, such as wolves and and things of that nature, is is what kind of bias is there? And what I'm what I'm confident in saying about Dr. Geist as we as we roll into this conversation is I don't feel like you, Dr. Geist, come into these conclusions and and opinions that you have through some kind of sort of or, or some sort of personal bias. I, I genuinely 
feel that you have an authentic study and research process that brings you to these conclusions in an unbiased way. Uh, and and I've heard you, uh, you had a really good way of explaining it when you were on uh, The Hunting Collective with Ben O'Brien, who does a great podcast. And, and that is a great episode. Uh, I want to say it was a, a little over a year ago when that episode came out. Um, so if you guys haven't listened to that, uh, it, it, it's a good one to listen to. Uh, but but I, I, I do feel like you are the essence of what a scientist and researcher should be because these conclusions are are they you're led to them you're not driving the path to them does that make sense? Well yes and let's start out from the beginning to get uh, past the misunderstanding. Okay. I'm not against wolves on the contrary. Yeah, I am either. the one who is fighting for their existence as a species. And um, uh, I think it's a good thing to begin with uh, what happened in the past. In the past, the wolf was a relatively rare animal. And it was a rare animal, as we now know, uh, because the large cats and predaceous bears were very effective in keeping wolves down. So, for instance, today in Manchuria, where there are tigers, there are virtually no wolves, and the tungus culturally are very familiar with that and they are supporting the tiger because wherever there are tigers there is wildlife to eat when wolves come in they completely destroy wildlife and there is none and you also have uh, in india for instance wherever you have uh, tigers wherever you have in india lions or uh, leopards you have virtually have no wolves at all in other words large cats were very effective in keeping wolves down now with the destruction of the large cats in North America, uh, following the Pleistocene ex- during the Pleistocene extinction, we had in North America very big lions. The same lions you find in Africa only about half uh, as large again. You had three, two species of saber-toothed cats here. Mm-hmm. You had the uh, puma, of course. And you had very large jaguars, and you had also the dire wolf, which was a totally different animal. It's not a wolf, really. It's a canid. Uh, very different from anything that we really have, and a mysterious one. But the net result was that wolves were a fairly scarce uh, animal. Now, that uh, what happens when you remove the uh, natural predation? One moment, please. Oh, yeah, you're fine. Yes, please come in. Would you please hang on for one moment? No problem. Uh, the just... uh, plumber has just come. Yep, yep. One moment. So we talked about this, guys, before the, the show started, that uh, Dr. Guy sprung a leak in his kitchen sink, and uh, he was expecting a plumber to show up. And so um, I knew this was coming, and I'm not sure if I'm going to edit this part out or not, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. Okay. Uh, Jim? Yep. Yep. We're back into it. So what I was trying to make quite clear is that in North America, we have an unnatural situation in the sense that wolves can be allowed to go free and multiply and do whatever they, uh, they want to do. And that is not natural. Yeah. The natural course of events for millions and billions of years was that the wolf was very severely controlled by other predators. That is one reason why this, the wolf has a higher productive rate and is an extremely efficient predator. Extremely efficient. Yes, yes. And so, so that's what we have to face. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the other thing that comes in, and this relates to what we were talking about, namely uh, other cultures. There is a very large literature available globally uh, 
about what wolves do, can do, have done in other countries. Uh, we have today very good studies coming out of France, where um, Professor Morisot uh, has been investigating uh, attacks by wolves on human beings, and he has, by the latest counts, over 9,000 of them. And he said that if his um, records would have been any better, because wars have destroyed so many church records, mm -hmm. he would have been able to accumulate 100,000 rather than only 10,000 or so uh, cases. Wow. But this is only one case. We have wolves in the, right, right around the northern hemisphere. And we have them, some, as I said, wonderful, wonderful literature and what they do and what has happened in the past. And that has been ignored almost completely. Mm -hmm. And it was ignored because the young men, it was mainly young men, uh, in the 1950s, when they started uh, working, um, for instance, they discovered what uh, wonderful um, little creatures young wolves are, and how sweet they are, and how good they are, uh, even as teenagers, and so on and so forth. And they didn't realize at that point uh, what was going to happen, because when they get adult, they switch around and about, and they're not so wonderful anymore. But um, that got into the literature. And when these young men, they were Americans, were asked about that global literature, they were, of course, caught off guard. How many of them know anything else except English? Yeah. yeah. And so the global literature, they, uh, at the same time, they could not admit to the fact that they didn't understand, hadn't read it. And so they played the game, oh yeah, this is, uh, these are just uh, fairy tales. Uh, we are the real scientists, and we are uh, in the position to really tell you about wolves. Our experience is valid, and what is being told to you in the literature is very frequently done by ignorant people, very much afraid of wolves. You see, this is the rubbish. That is the rubbish on which so much of your understanding of wolves is built in North America, and that's a tragedy. Let's let, let's expand on that for a minute. The the, the rubbish. Sure. Uh, are, are you talking in regards to the fear? That no, I'm saying the following: that the early early insights, the premature insights in the 1950s about wolves, dominated, okay. and uh, it's so difficult to correct them. Because you have to, as I said, uh, do uh, your homework and read what other uh, people do. For instance, I read the encyclopedia uh, written in the 16th century, 17th century, published in 1717, a beautiful encyclopedia, by the way, on hunting and forestry. And it was uh, done by a, a nobleman who had been active in the 30-year war previously. And he uh, did this as a present to the king of Poland. Hmm. Now, he is very dry when it comes to wolves. He describes very, very correctly much of their behavior and so on and so forth and their ecology and attacks on wolves. And that is the only literature that I've ever seen in which somebody describes correctly how to differentiate between the tracks of a female wolf as opposed to a male wolf, yeah? Yeah. Well, you see, in those days, tracking 
was a highly, highly developed art. The medieval hunters were superlative trackers. I'll give you a little example. At uh, the uh, end of his um, uh, apprenticeship, the medieval hunter had to be able to differentiate by 75 signs whether a male or a female deer had passed away. How many signs would you know? How would you distinguish the track of what is a male, what is a female? They had to know it by 75. That has been reduced to 35 in the recent days because it's said that the other ones are more trivial. But to give you an example of that, yeah, they were very great houndsmen. They tracked with hounds specific deer individually. And so tracking was a highly, highly developed art. And of course, quite naturally, mm-hmm. um, this uh, gentleman describes the difference between the tracks of a wolf that is infected with rabies as opposed to a normal wolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how many of the so-called scientists here know to distinguish a dog track from a wolf track? Not many. Let alone the track of a sick wolf from that of a healthy wolf. So, okay. 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 Yep. Yep. I, uh... (laughs) so, okay. Go ahead. Uh, So uh, I'm quite upset about the fact that you have gone ahead in the United States and in Europe and you're introducing wolves into settled landscapes because what you are doing is you're coy wolfing the whole damn continent. Mm Mm-hmm. In other words, when you introduce wolves into settled landscapes, they eventually, eventually hybridize with dogs and with coyotes here and with golden jackals in Europe, yeah? Mm -hmm. And you destroy the genetics of the real wolf, and you get a worthless hybrid in its place. That's called the coy wolf. Yep. Yep. That is neither fish nor fowl. So, and do you think, what do you say to, like, the the people that are... There's a lot. There's a lot of opinions out there, obviously, on this. But there, there's one of the one of the themes of of yes. intro, reintroducing wolves to the landscape, yes. specifically. Yes. Right now, the argument is Colorado for for us down here in the lower. Yeah, Florida. I know. I know that. Yeah. I know that. Yep. And I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Right. Um. <laughs> we'll, we'll skip this till <laughs> it's done. Uh, but we can tack, uh, speak a little bit off the record as well, by the way. That's fine and dandy. <laughs> and you can pick and choose. Well, I, yeah, you know, there's... We're, you see, my argument is that what you're doing is you're destroying the wolf. I, I agree. And and what I want to get is your your uh, your take on, on this opinion, this running theme that, oh, we're just going to reintroduce wolves and let yes. nature work itself out and balance <laughs> yes, itself yes, out. Yes, yes. I yeah. know this argument. Yeah. And you, you know, and I also know the counter argument, by the way. Oh, let, let's. The let's counter talk argument about that. is presented. By, pardon me. The counter argument against that argument is presented by your national parks, mm-hmm. by your very own national parks, which have discovered. Oh my God! What's going on in our parks? We are having a uh, management where nature knows best. We don't interfere. And what happens? You're losing your biodiversity in your national parks. And that's exactly what's happened in Yellowstone. You're using the biodiversity. And on top of that, uh, you are giving space to invasive species, which in the United States were, according to the park um, website, 6,500 already. Wow. Is this this conservation? Is that nature conservation? No. No. In other words, (laughs) of course it's not. 
And this insight has to be to permeate. This idea that let nature know, uh, work because it knows best is rubbish. It's complete and utter nonsense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a dream, but it is not based on any facts of any validity. The only way to have biodiversity and productivity and beauty because of biodiversity and so on, and diversity, is to go in and establish it yourself. Because we have, there is no such thing as a natural landscape in North America. There hasn't been one for 12,000 years. Yeah. Because uh, after the destruction of the megafauna, the ecology of the landscape changed dramatically under human management. Uh, the reason is very simple, because the moment you remove the megafauna, you have wildfires, like you have in California now. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you have vegetation growing up, and it shows in the uh, record uh, of the charcoal in the soil. Yeah? Yeah. So once the megafauna was destroyed, people had to go and learn how to manage the landscape with fire. And they did a, a wonderful job eventually of that. Yeah? But it, it was a necessity. Because before that, it was the megafauna that maintained the landscape wide open and controlled the vegetation. And developed a very fertile soil, by the way, because we still have a few lenses of that ancient soil that was very, very fertile compared with today's soil. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you've had in North America the uh, very heavy hand of man on the landscape out of sheer necessity. And out of it developed a great understanding of how to manage the landscape, which was, of course, destroyed once Columbus came to the continent. Yeah. Yep. and uh, which we're sort of rediscovering slowly, step by step. The same thing in Australia, of course. But native people were very good at managing the landscape in such a fashion as to maximize its utility for human beings. Okay. And today's yeah. landscape, uh, well, it's, uh, as I said, everything is good, going wild, but that's not natural. That is a consequence of our human activity. Exactly. That's why we don't have any natural landscapes left in North America. Exactly. That, that, that's an important point. And, and I want to get to the nuts and bolts of, of the wolf impact. But uh, yes. b- before we get to that, um, I want to talk about that. We, the, the, we're, we live in both in America and in Canada. We, we have this uh, fantasy that, that these forests and these wilderness areas and these uh, national park areas, uh, th- that are, th- these are completely uh, a product of Mother Nature only. And and not well, a product of of the management between uh, for for the last several thousand years, and that's another distinction. It's not just in the last you know since uh, you know Yellowstone came about as a as a national park. This concept goes back thousands of years through Native Americans and uh, you know. Uh, Jim, I'm as Jim, I'm as guilty as anybody. Mm-hmm. I was involved in getting in setting aside in Canada huge areas of land. Uh, under total protection. The biggest ecological reserve in British Columbia, the province I'm in, is my own study area of mountain sheep and mountain goats in the Spatsisi. Yeah? Yep. I was chairman of a, a group of scientists that looked around for ecological reserves, areas to be protected. I'm just as guilty as anybody else believing that what we were doing was right. Well, in part it was, but in part it wasn't. It's, what it was wrong with what my approach is that you have once you establish an area for conservation, you have to actively maintain the qualities that it has. You cannot let it go because they, these qualities that it has will disappear over time. And that's what we find out because species die out and the land is invaded by uh, invasive species. And it's a totally different, it's a mess. 
to say the very least. I, I agree. I okay, okay. So let's 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 kind of refocus back on wolves for a minute. Um, okay. I, and I want to put it into this perspective because in this the perspective because it's it's near and dear to my heart because I'm I'm in the state of Idaho. In 1995, yes, they yes. reintroduced uh, the, the wolves. Correct. The the You're understanding right. the Idaho Fish and Game determined that the state of Idaho can manage and and the landscape can uh, can maintain uh, between 300 and 500 wolves. Well, as you said, as as you said in the beginning of this, wolves are very proficient at breeding. They're prolific, very profi- that's right. Yes, they're they're prolific breeders. And right. when we what what happened is we go into this ten year span after reintroduction of of yeah. uh, judicial blockage where we they wouldn't get that's them correct. off of the endangered species list and so these these right. wolves had free that's range right. they had no predator they had no enemy correct. all they had was free range of the state of Idaho uh, and, and this obviously also happened in. Um, Montana and Wyoming as well, uh, and in the oh, park. It happened in Banff National Park too, by the way. Exactly. Canada. Yep. yep it happened exactly. In, right now, we have virtually no wild, no big game left in British Columbia because mm-hmm. of the policies of maintaining uh, total protection on uh, on predators. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah. so what what developed is after all this, uh, the the. the Having a hard time getting them off the, the the endangered species list because of these environmental, uh, the, the what what I consider misguided pro wolf uh, folks that yeah, that, that get a lot of yeah. funding from a lot of obscure places, <laughs> to say the least. Well, and as I said, they are running a myth and they are running a nice fairy tale. It's a very good fairy tale that they have. Mm-hmm. It tells tremendously. Exactly. And wolves. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, uh, the uh, family life of wolves is interesting. Of course it is, and appealing, and wolves, little wolves, are very, very appealing little creatures. Uh, but, uh, well, yeah. if you keep them, uh, they become wolves after about 18, 19 months of age. And I can tell you, I am a great believer in dogs. I love dogs, and I'm so glad that my dogs are not wolves. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, for your very, sake and my Wolves are very dangerous in the, ho- in the house. Very, very dangerous. Yes. Because uh, eventually they, they treat you completely different than dogs do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's another, that's another story. I said, let's get back to the beginning. Okay. The idea yeah. of introducing wolves was uh, an idea of trying to uh, restore a landscape because, for instance, uh, in uh, Yellowstone National Park, wolves were exterminated, I think, by about 1926 unless I'm greatly mis- mistaken. Okay. And uh, so the idea was, let's uh, put them back in the park and see what happens. And it may seem odd, but I think that was a good idea. This was an a, a opportunity to, to learn. Mm-hmm. Had we only stuck by that, yeah? Yeah. I would yeah. have been... In, uh, and if we had taken that as an example to learn, to teach what is happening before we start introducing them everywhere else, before we have judicial decisions that basically tell you that whenever there's a coyote today, there will be a wolf tomorrow, yeah? Mm-hmm. And you will have to live with the consequences, which is horrible. And, because, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and that goes into what what, what you're talking about in the park and, and the consequences that they've had to deal with there um, has has developed into kind of a multi-state issue uh, throughout the, the Pacific Northwest and into, into Wyoming, uh, and now they're talking about that into Colorado, and so so now what what we've yeah. been after after all that I explained about Idaho, what what happened when they finally were delisted, we were left with um, well over the management objective of wolves population wise, correct, 
a right. they, they they we're able to manage them, but nobody knows how to manage them because we've never had them, and there's just nobody here. We had to bring folks from Alaska <clears throat> to teach us how well, to trap them. Okay, historically, historically, we have only been able to live with wolves if we were controlling them very, very, very closely. We had to do exactly what nature had done previously. We had to do exactly what the big cats used to do, and that is to keep the wolves down at a very, very low level. Then we can barely live with them. i give you an example of Japan, actually, because it's an interesting example. Okay. The Japanese were at the stage of venerating wolves and making them into deities, in fact. They loved them so very much. And the reason was that the samurai had taken away the weapons of the farmers, and the farmers could no longer protect their fields against marauding pigs and against marauding deer. And the only way they could control, uh, could salvage their crops was to basically invite wolves onto their land so they would take care of the, uh, of the deer and of the, of the pigs. And they made uh, statues to them and they prayed to them and God knows what else. So they had a very real affection and they had a good use for the wolf. Well, mm-hmm. when, the, when the wolves in Japan got rabies, and rabies is a terrible disease. And rabid wolves are something unbelievably ferocious. What did the Japanese do? They exterminated the wolves by 1905. No more wolves in Japan. Is that so still to this day, possible? no more wolves? No more wolves, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> how is it possible that you go from looking at the wolves as a deity, venerating it, yeah, to the point where you exterminate it completely? Yeah. It shows you something. This is really, this has happened. Yeah. This has yeah. happened in our yeah. century, for heaven's sake. Yeah. Yep. To yep. give you one example. Yep. But as I said, let's start, first of all, what is the impact of wolves? Basically, we have some very lovely data now coming from Vance, pardon me, coming from uh, Yellowstone National Park, but also from other areas. Basically, wolves destroy right away about 90% of your uh, big game populations. Well, that's just quite something. Yeah, and that's, actually that's a it huge goes, number. That's a huge number. And it gets even further than that. We have right now in Siberia, in Alaska, in northern Canada, areas that are so devoid of wildlife that we call them predator pits. And the predator pit is, a st- and it's, by the way, the predator pit happened in my lifetime in mm-hmm. a magnificent wildlife area called the Spatizi, where I did my research on stone sheep and mountain goats, and which today, as I said, is a provincial park, and my own area is a well-protected ecological reserve. And it went from a wildlife paradise in my lifetime to a wildlife desert. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the process. What, what is a predator pit? Uh, and, and okay, the process is, was very, very simple. Uh, well, first of all, we, we, we're getting now into history because you have some misunderstandings in, your, uh, in uh, North America which are uh, pers- persistent. There is, for instance, a myth that the North American wolf does not attack people. Mm-hmm. That was a very, very active myth during my lifetime. 
Yeah, well. uh, Erich Klinghammer was my dear friend, the late Eric, Professor Erich Klinghammer, who created Wolf Park in uh, Battleground, Indiana. And I remember talking with him, what the difference is the difference between Siberian wolves, or Russian wolves, and North American wolves. Well, it took us some time to figure out, but what was happening was the following. It's an important uh, part. We had in Canada wolves. You exterminated yours, but we had them. We had about, we have today about 60,000 wolves. We had in the past probably 20,000 or so on. And that was a time when we had our whole landscape divided up into trapping territories. And throughout northern Canada, we had about 60,000 trappers. Now, the trappers were desperately poor men. They were trying to get a grub stake, and they earned somewhere between 300 and at the most $500 a winter trapping, mm -hmm. which is very little money. And it's heartbreaking and backbreaking work to trap. It's tough. Yes. And so when and their mode of transportation in those days was the dog sled. So they had dogs and sleds and so on. Now, dog sleds and wolves do not get along. Mm -hmm. So that's the first difficulty. The second difficulty is that wolves notoriously followed the trap lines and destroyed fur. And when you get at the most $300, $500 uh, during the trapping season and you see a pelt worth $20 destroyed, you can imagine what that person thinks and feels. And the third is that whenever wolves show up, and by God, I can, I can guarantee you that because I've experienced it many, many times. Wildlife just leaves the area at once. Yeah, you My mountain goats just scrambled out of the mountains through the canyons and out gone they were. And moose and caribou and everything disappeared for several days, uh, well, up to a week or so. Everything was gone because wolves really caused panic amongst wildlife. And to the trappers, this was a dangerous situation because they depended on wildlife for food. And so you have wolves destroying uh, uh, fur, you have wolves destroying their dogs, you have wolves emptying the landscape of wildlife. They were not very happy about it. Mm -hmm. So they tried their very best, of course, to control wolves. Now, at the same time, <clears throat> the Canadian government, uh, or pardon me, provincial government stepped in because they were afraid of Hydatid disease, which is a terrible disease. I know it because in my lifetime, a professor... Um, studied it because it was still common before the days of snowmobiles. By the way, and I'll come to that in a moment. Okay. And so they introduced airplane. Um, uh, well, they started killing wolves by throwing out poisoned uh, meat, uh, horse meat primarily, from um, aircraft. And so, so we had a very low population. But please note now the statistics. We had 60,000 trappers. We probably had less than 30,000 wolves. So you had for every wolf two trappers at least. Okay. Well, what that does, wolves are extremely intelligent. They're different from dogs. It's a different intelligence, and they are sight learners. They are very, very good at learning, and they're very shy. And the net result was that every wolf in Canada was exposed to human beings that were carrying guns, that were notoriously opposed to wolves, and that doesn't even count all the hunters that came to hunt in the in the same landscape in fall and outfitters, that doesn't count 
the uh, native population. That doesn't count the residents of the population. That just speaks about trappers, 60,000 against about 20,000, 30,000 wolves. The net result was that we had extremely well-educated wolves. We had also, the, when you start to depress the wolves, the response by the wildlife is enormous. If you just simply get uh, rid of wolves or make them very scarce, you will infold, you increase the population of wildlife by 10 to 20-fold. It's a tremendous increase. So the net result increase. was in the 40s and 50s, we had a very, very large abundance of, of wildlife, and, but we also had wolves. They were still living in natural packs, and they were giants. Man, they were big. And I know, because I saw them still as a young zoologist with my very own eyes. The first wolf that I killed, I couldn't lift the thing. Wow. And I was a strong man. Mm-hmm. It was the size of a damn good-sized whitetail buck. You try to lift a wow. whitetail buck, <laughs> and then you, there, you, there you see something. Now, these were giants. Because we had such an abundance of wildlife at that time. I'll give you a couple of episodes. Uh, December 23rd, 1958. Early morning, and I'm lying on top of a cornice of snow, a snowdrift. Rifle in hand, looking down a slope at some moose below, including a very, very fine bull moose. A mile away, roughly, is a friend of mine, Michel Steinle, who became the head of the Bavarian Forest Service eventually, and he has a spotting scope. And Michel is counting the moose that are below me. There are 36 moose below me, of which 14 wow. are bulls. I have never seen 36 moose. I took moles. the biggest bull. It's hanging 10 feet away from here on the, on the wall still. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. September 1961, newly married, my wife and I are climbing up in the Spatisi Plateau at the southern end of uh, Coldfish Lake. We pop out at the top, and we are at once confronted by a gathering <clears throat> of caribou bulls. <clears throat> this gathering of milling bodies is about 300 yards across, and there's a wall of moving antlers in front of us, about a quarter of a mile away, by the way. And we are standing there, mouth wide open, gaping at this incredible phenomenon. Now, this is actually a gathering of the bulls, and it takes place when you have abundant reindeer, and you find it <clears throat> occasionally in the migratory uh, barren ground caribou. But these, and this was my study area, by the way. It was so abundant at that time that this phenomenon occurred. And I've never met another human being who has seen it in British Columbia, but I have with my own eyes. Yeah? The Osborne caribou is a branch of the barren ground caribou. It's not a mountain caribou. It is a very large caribou. Uh, one of the haunches of a bull I killed shortly thereafter weighed about 60 pounds. Wow. So that shows you uh, they're yeah, very, very large a Big caribou. <laughs> as such. Now, remember that this is what I saw today. Mm-hmm. No caribou, virtually. Yeah. They're gone. But you do find, if you are on horseback and you ride the countryside and you ride the trails, you find everywhere the white antlers bleaching and rotting mm. from what there used to be. Okay. Okay. So why is it that the moment we started to protect the area, the area became a wildlife desert? Well, uh, about uh, uh, 15 years or so after I had been in the country, one of my students who was eager to study caribou, she did in fact a wonderful job, wanted to take a peek if this Patizi was still a good place 
to study caribou. And so they uh, did a thorough flight over looking for caribou. Well, they hardly found any caribou, but they did find one pack of wolves numbering 43. Huh. So that answers the question. That's, that's where they're at. That's, that's where they went. So now we have here the development of the predator pit. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning. Okay. The wolf begins to take down. No, we better go through it systematically. And the first thing is that the wolf takes down the wildlife population to a very, very low level. And then the next things kick in. And the next thing that kicks in is the grizzly bear. The grizzly bears are absolutely fantastic at catching uh, finding and catching calves and kids and lambs, etc. Mm-hmm. And our mm-hmm. colleagues in Alaska have done a fairly decent job investigating this. And one method was attaching uh, cameras to a to grizzly bears and letting them go for a month. And after 30 days, taking the cameras off and seeing what the cameras recorded. Well, a 10-year-old male, in which they did that, had killed over 50. Um, caribou and moose calves in that 30 days. Wow. And the, well, that's all in the literature. It's been published. And the least successful was a male that in 27 days killed only seven calves and so on. Hmm. So what you have, and this is now the agreement which we have in Siberia, in Alaska, and also developing in Canada, that the predator pit is generated initially by wolves today, then grizzly bears take over, and the grizzly bears benefit very much from the beautiful resurgence of the vegetation that takes place. And they are having a good time, and when the calving season comes around, these bears begin hunting calves, and you should see how they do it. I've seen it with my own eyes. From, those, very from those collared cameras? Yes, that's right. That's right. I'd that's love right. to see that. There, there was a decent method, and it really, everybody was aware they were killing cows. We never had an idea how many. But that is a method to investigate this. And this gives you an answer to it, yeah? So now you have a situation that you have wildlife deserts in Siberia, in Alaska, and in Canada. And um, I've just, I'm writing a paper just now on that with a Russian colleague in Moscow. Uh, the funny thing was that when I described what I found, he said, he said but that's exactly what we have in Siberia. Huh. And uh, the way to, f- to verify that is uh, follow a hunting party that has paid a lot of money to shoot a snow sheep. Uh, the Russians call them Snezhnibarane, which is snow sheep. <laughs> and they go for days and days and days through superlative wildlife habitat and don't see anything, any wildlife. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And then eventually they see... Uh, a female, a ewe and a uh, lamb somewhere, or eventually they run into two or three rams and they're happier than can be, and eventually they kill a ram. Well, when I came to the Spatsizi in 1961, I went up the first valley, and there were 22 rams there. I studied those for eight weeks. I sat about 700, 800 yards away with my spotting scope, from daylight to dawn, and I was beginning my studies trying to understand what the behavior of the sheep were mm-hmm. uh, about. The next valley over had 16, by the way. These are the differences, yeah? Yep, Tremendous yep. difference. Why? Now let's come back to why did we have in the Spatsizi such an abundance of wildlife? Why did we have such an abundance of wildlife while the trappers <clears throat> were there with their dog sleds? 
Because he because were, when the trappers change to um, change to uh, snowmobiles, yeah, mm-hmm. that changed things. Wolves were no longer such a threat to trappers at that point, yeah. Oh. And mm-hmm. something else. In my in the 1960s and 70s, most of the guided hunting in the north was done from horseback. Now it was. It took a lot of money and a lot of effort to get the horses into that distant country in northwest British Columbia. And once they were there, these horses were precious. They had to be looked after in winter. And the first thing you have to make sure in winter is that they are not being killed by wolves. So the protection of the horses was usually done by native people or by trappers, which were being hired. And these trappers were traveling by horse by a dog sled also, yeah? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the net result was that between protecting their own self-interest, being able to go through the country readily without being harassed by wolves with their dog teams, they also had to look after the horses. And the combination of that generated wildlife, like I experienced it when I was a young man. Unbelievable. Hang on for a moment. Okay. You ever go hunting with somebody that always chintzes out on like the most important thing, like boots? I did a couple times. And you know what happened? They slipped and fell down the mountain the entire month of September. That's what happens when you buy $100 boots and and try to make them last. They don't last. Guys, Hoffman Boots, can't say enough good things about this company. It's a great family-owned business right here in North Idaho. They make badass boots. These things are insanely insanely comfortable they just glue your feet to the mountain in the steepest of conditions they will keep you safer because of that so while my buddies are falling on their butt the entire time i'm walking down like i'm in the park guys i have a great promo code that'll save you 15 percent if you go to hoffmanboots.com it is all caps lock huntsman 15 in the checkout when you are ready for a new pair of great boots that you won't have to replace for a very long time Guys, Scree. Scree is Extreme Mountain Gear. They were one of the first sponsors of this podcast. And this high-performance hunting attire and gear, is it's scientifically tested camo patterns, backed by a great company, and it's got a lifetime warranty, VIP sizing, and, and, and exchange program. Basically, if you, if you order it and it's the wrong size, they pay for it to get shipped back, and they're going to send it back. I heard of some dude that accidentally ripped uh, a pair of his hard scrabble pants, and he was upset about it, and he let Scree know, and they replaced him for him. Guys, this is a great company. That's the kind of company that I am proud to have supporting this show and being partnered with them. Uh, It's just, again, a great company story and and, and a company that you guys would be proud to own the gear for. It'll get you through any season, anywhere in North America. Check it out at ScreeGear.com and use the promo code the Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping at checkout. And last, but by far not least, Phelps Game Calls. Guys, Phelps Game Calls, uh, I, I, you guys, if you've listened to any of these episodes, uh, as I, as I kind of 
dissected my last September. I had so many bull elk encounters using these calls, and I used everything from the pink Maverick to the Ma- or the pink amp to the Maverick. I used the Renegade bugle tube. I used a couple of their external read calls. I uh, just had a ball calling in elk left and right, hand over fist, and because these calls work. Obviously, they work well. It's not just about that, though. Guys, Jason Phelps started this company from scratch and built it into what it is now. The company, the game call company that we all know well. And I, I just, I think that that is so important. These the, these American companies that are born out of an idea and they grow into this this thing that, that we can all get behind and love and support and the, and the personalities and the people behind it, that's Phelps Game Calls. Salt of the Earth company, salt of the earth people that run it. And I can't say enough good things about Phelps Game Calls. Don't forget, it's not just about elk with Phelps. You get you a, uh, a black ta- a black tail in distress call and watch those deer come into you while they're rutting because it fires up those those does and what do you think is right behind those does during the rut? November's coming. Make sure you're getting your deer calls as well. So check it out at PhelpsGameCalls.com and use the promo code Huntsman10 for 10% off at sh- uh, checkout. I keep wanting to say shipping. <laughs> That's how I roll. All right, guys. With that said, thank you to the sponsors of this show. Let's get back to the discussion. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. We'll talk to you later. Well, the, uh, how, how's the plumbing going? He just there? he just came and said, you know, that my last name is Wolf. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Oh, that's good. Yeah, oh, that is, that's very cute. Anyway, they fixed the, the problem here. Oh, good. Uh, fine and dandy. So, uh, uh, Jim, you can see what uh, what I'm trying to drive at. Yes. We had in the 1940s and 50s, unbeknownst to us, mechanisms that kept the wolves in the wilderness areas down in numbers. The response by wildlife was magnificent. We had such an abundance of wildlife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The first day I went deer hunting, um, in 1955, I was uh, very, very green at that point. I saw 26 deer. I missed eight big bucks, yeah, mm-hmm. because they were all on the run, and I had uh, mistakenly learned from uh, 18 from uh, experiences from the 1880s in shooting black powder how far you have to aim ahead of a running deer. And I did it with a modern rifle, and I missed every one of them. But don't worry. Next day, I shot a beautiful five-pointer. Oh, it's hanging on the wall right now. <laughs> so, yeah. so okay. you had here very, very well-educated wolves throughout Canada. And I know it because I observed them. Yes, I killed a couple of big wolves in the Spatizia. The rest uh, let live. There were seven of them. And I observed them for two years running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, very insightful. And these were giants, these wolves, absolute and shy, shy, shy. Yeah? Wow. When I came to the Vancouver Island here, I had starvation wolves. That was totally different. They were lots they, Right away, uh, they emptied, yeah, smaller because they emptied out the landscape. And the, the biodiversity of an island is much less than that of the mainland. Mm-hmm. And so in a very short time, they were in the uh, backyards. And, well, 350 yards from where I am, Five wolves attacked my neighbor and his wife. No kidding. Yes, no kidding. Wow. And while, uh, due to fortunate incidents, the uh, roadway was quite narrow, and my colleague, my uh, neighbor, picked up a big branch of a red cedar that was lying there and started smashing it into the wolves. Wow. 
And the wife at first jumped into the caboose of an excavator, but then she saw that uh, John was handling things. Then she ran towards my house, screaming, Val, Val, come, John, wolves, rifle. Well, I was behind the computer, and I was still in my morning gown, and I grabbed hold of my 30 or 6, and I charged out, and I came seconds too late. Uh, John uh, had by that time beaten back the wolves, and he was breathing heavily and quite excited. And he said, my God, if these wolves had carries, they would have seen every single one of them. Hmm. Uh, These wolves didn't learn a damn thing out of that confrontation because the following day, they attacked him and his wife again about 200 yards further on. But this time he carried the rifle and he killed the biggest one. Uh, It was a male that weighed 75 pounds. I weighed it myself. Hmm. That's a starvation wolf. Yeah. That's a small wolf. Yeah, yeah, it's small. And wolf. the wolves that I killed here were about 50, 60 pounds. Gotcha. And, and they, so that, well, actually, before I ask you that, um, just to wrap up on, on this predator pit topic, because I want to, yes, I want to come back to what you're talking about here. Um, I, I, I want to, like, as an analysis or, or I guess uh, a conclusion to that, uh, a, a good way to summarize it would be the wolves come in, they they make they create the severe decline in population of the ungulate population, you know, deer, elk, moose. That's right. And then everything. Yeah. And then they move on or or die off because of the lower they population. They die off. Okay, they die off. That's right. But the bears. Maintain the Continue. low population of the That's remaining right. ungulate herds because right. they're able to essentially make it so the reproduction rate is so low because they, they're, they're so efficient at killing the calves. The, hence, your population of things such as deer, elk, moose, caribou uh, don't have an opportunity opportunity to, uh, to grow as a population and recover. That's right. Okay. okay. That's right. But you yeah. know the cute thing about this? Of the few remaining ungulates which manage to live in the predator pit, are, of course, faced by a superabundance of, of forage. And they grow the most fantastic trophies you can imagine. Yeah, I'll bet they do. <laughs> I'll well, bet, that's, I'll bet this they is, do. by the way, the Chadwick ram, <clears throat> the most famous stones ram, the biggest ram in the take in North America, was killed in a predator pit. Mm, okay. That was Chadwick. Wow. Yeah. And the next uh, hunter who came in, who left a beautiful, beautiful account of his days, and you can really uh, understand what he was seeing, was a German gentleman, Lothar Graf Hönsbrück, and he shot some magnificent uh, trophies uh, there as well, in the same area where Chadwick had hunted. And when he came out, the Second World War had broken out, and the mounted police took him into custody and kept him in a concentration camp for two years in Calgary. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> You've got some stories, but you Dr. see, Geist. I know about these things because I read German. You see, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep. I and know. this was actually my introduction to so many people in the north because they all were aware of what had happened, but they didn't know what happened to the count. And I knew hmm. he was enthusiastic about Canada. He was looking forward to coming back, <clears throat> and then something happened that he died. Yeah, yeah. And he wrote yeah. a lovely book about his experience. Lovely book. He was so enthusiastic about. Uh, everything that he saw. But anyway, his, his book is very worthwhile reading, but you can read in between the lines what he's seeing, and they go for days without seeing anything. That's typical of a president pit. And, and when there, you see there, something, it's very good. And there is no reason to for anybody to believe in the lower 48 that these predator pits are not essentially bound to happen with the recent re- Well, they have happened already, I, but with the uh, mountain lion. They so the mountain lion is, is added with mountain into that. Lion. 
Oh, okay. Oh, my God, and how? Uh, you have a terrible depression of deer in areas in which mountain lions are protected, and the mountain lions maintain themselves now by not only killing deer, but by killing the calves uh, from the commercial operations. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. In other words, the ranchers are maintaining the mountain lions, which are destroyed. And you go across the border to Texas, and you can see what a difference there is in densities of deer. What what happens what happens if um, w- down in New Mexico and Arizona uh, they, they've they've basically been kind of recovering the population of of the red wolf and and now they're talking about well, wait a second wait, 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 oops, 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 oops. you uh, you have the Mexican wolf and you have the red wolf the two different things okay the, I. I... This is something that I, yeah, I, red, I I'm gonna I'm I'm probably gonna say this wrong. I want to say that it is the red wolf that they are recovering the population of, but well, wait a second, the red wolf. Please, 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 let's get it straight. Okay. The red wolf, so-called red wolf that you have today, uh-huh. is an artifact bred in captivity. Okay? Oh, really? Okay. Bred I didn't know in that. captivity. I didn't know. Now that. you do. Okay. And uh, the, the, these were um, from coyote populations were sort of winnowed down to get a phenotype that what the researchers thought resembles a red wolf. And that is the red wolf that has been liberated into North Carolina. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Now, I am really questioning whether there was such a thing as a red wolf to begin with. Because in 1527, you had an expedition mounted by Spaniards, an expedition that went into Florida, and continued all the way to Mexico. There were 300 men that started it. There were four that finished it. The man that was uh, second in command survived. His name was Cabeza de Vaca, and he was a nobleman. He was a falconer and a hunter. And as he traversed the countryside, he reported on what he found um, in terms that would be interesting to the emperor in Spain, Charles V, who was also a falconer and a passionate hunter. He is the man that is associated with something that most people have heard about, the Maltese falcon. You've heard about the Maltese falcon, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that was something that Charles V put into place. He gave the island of Malta to knights, and the knights, in turn, gave him annually a falcon. This was a passionate falconer. Wow. And these, the biggest, uh, the area that uh, he used to hunt in is today Donana National Park, very close to Seville in Spain. But he was the emperor of, uh, of all of Europe, and uh, he spoke <laughs> fluently um, Spanish, Italian, French, and German. <laughs> That's amazing. And the way, he put it, the way he put it was quite nicely. He said, when I speak to God, I speak Spanish. When I speak to the ladies, I use Italian. To the French, uh, to the gentlemen, I dress in French. When I go to my horses, I speak to them in German. <laughs> I love it. Well, that is the man. That is the man who'd received reports from Alvarez Nunes Cabeza de Vaca. Mm-hmm. And Cabeza de Vaca went through uh, Florida and all the coastal regions right to Mexico without seeing a single coyote or wolf. Okay? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, that was very scarce. The country there was overpopulated by humans, and there was a lot of starvation. Well, that was very, very scarce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So then I am finding out that a, I don't have it right now completely in memory, but I can certainly send you the reference, a botanist and uh, naturalist who is working in 18, pardon me, in 1775, 74, 76 in Georgia. He is in uh, Louisiana and he is in Florida. Okay. During yeah. this time, this man sees only black wolves. Okay. In, in in what region? That that is in the Georgia, Florida, Florida, Louisiana, Louisiana, Georgia. Okay. okay. He only sees black wolves. That's all. Hmm. He says that there are people that tell him that there are other color phases available, but he cannot vouch for that because all he sees, you see, he's looking at buffalo wolves. Mm-hmm. At that time, buffaloes had expanded uh, into Georgia, and wolves always follow buffaloes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have to get another step back. Uh, you had a tremendous uh, die-off of native North American people, beginning actually in uh, 1539 with the DeSoto expedition. Uh, the DeSoto expedition landed in Florida, and they released something like 500 pigs and drove them ahead of themselves. And humans and pigs started giving off illnesses to native people, yeah, and they were aware this. of it. Yeah, yeah, they, they were aware of that. That's the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it killed, in the middle of about 50, 60 years, something like 56 to 120 million people. We don't know exactly, but it's in that uh, range. And, of course, when the heavy hand of red men came off the landscape, wildlife exploded. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why you saw all those buffalo. That's why you saw all the passenger pigeons. Passenger pigeons were rare birds. Cabeza de Vaca never saw a passenger pigeon. He doesn't, and he's a falconer. He's yeah. interested in, 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 in birds, yeah? Yep. Um, De Soto himself sees the very first turkey in Louisiana. He doesn't see a single turkey in um, Florida. Everything edible was being eaten. Uh, if you're a deer hunter, you will appreciate the following. Uh, Capita de Vaca reports that when the natives went hunting for deer, they took along um, firewood and water. Because where there was water and firewood, there was no deer. Hmm. So and that, they used yeah. longbows. They were very powerful longbows, and they were excellent shots. Uh, Cabeza de Vaca is a combat officer, so he can appreciate that. He says that these arrows reached easily 200 yards and penetrated all the Spanish armor. That's, yeah, if you've so got the, stuff document or um, something you could send me on that, I'd love to read that. That's that's really interesting for me. Well, I've written a paper on that. Okay. Yeah, and I'll, a friend of mine said, you will never get this published in the United States. I mean, in North America, that is. Okay. I said, I won't even bother because it's published in Germany, period. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll put it out on, on our website at thewesternhuntsman.com for sure. Uh, I, I think that, yeah. that kind of stuff is... It, it, it is absolutely fascinating to see what these people... Kabeza uh, de Vaca survived because he was a very clever man. And he was at times a slave of the natives, so he had to live like they had. Mm-hmm. He was at uh, times a captive. He was a host. But he uh, became an honored um, shaman because he was able to operate and extract arrows and so on. He was uh, skilled in uh, European battle uh, surgery, basically. In other words, if you are out there and you are in battle, you have to know certain things to save somebody who has been hit by a sword, mm-hmm. for instance. Yeah? Yep, yep. And so he was able to extract arrows out of... And he said uh, they revered him. So by the time he reached Mexico, he said there were almost 3,500 people following him. Wow. Yeah, I'd, I I'd love to read that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's available. Okay. 
I'm going to get a hold of that. Um, I, I and you were right. I the 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 Arizona the the recovery there is the Mexican wolf. It's not the red wolf. Um, I had that backwards. I just found it on the right. Arizona Game and Fish website here. So. Um, yeah, and the question with that, Doctor Geist, was like in in so Arizona and New Mexico, and and then you have Colorado kind of butted up there. Yeah, that's um, right. What happens if they put the gray wolf into Colorado, and and it well, comes into contact uh, the, with the, the, the gray wolf is already in Colorado. It's so it's, it's, you, yeah, you have already right. a pack there. Yeah, there there is a yeah. pack up, and I believe it's in the northwest right. corner. Um, but, yeah. but they're talking well, about a full-on reintroduction. You will have very, uh, you have, you will have very uh, great difficulties with ranching. You're going to lose your elk almost completely. Uh, the only place, <clears throat> the thing what hap- will happen in Colorado happened actually in Yellowstone Park. For instance, uh, we know that from the northern herd that numbered about 19,000 elk in Yellowstone, mm-hmm. 4,000 survived, but they only survived because they went onto private land. Yeah. Yep, they went outside the park, and that's what's happening in Idaho. We and we've we've, we've of I've course had that uh, discussion. Uh, where a few times. the wolf is being controlled on private land, that's where the wildlife uh, goes. The same thing is in Alberta. You know, mm-hmm. we've uh, mm-hmm. in my days there was never any moose in the prairies. Today there are moose moving from the hills, from the um, foothills, uh, which is wolf country, way hundreds of miles out into the prairies, and they're living in various coolies trying to escape. And they're not. They're not. That, that that that's a great point because that's exactly what happening is happening to our elk here. Essentially, leaving the backcountry, coming down onto the agricultural interface. Right. I've I've heard it called. That's right. Uh, that's and then right. that's which is their normal winter range. But the problem is, is they're not leaving the winter range anymore. They're not going back into that's the right. backcountry. That's exactly what you find in Alberta as well. Now there are a lot of elk in the out of the foothills, out in the ranch country. Right. Do you, well, this. This is what was happening in the in the town sites in the national parks anyway. Mm-hmm. The elk uh, and deer and salt came into natural into the town sites because that's where they were safe from predation. On Vancouver Island, after the wolves uh, started spreading in the 1970s, uh, virtually all the black-tailed deer wound up in town, and that's where we have some beautiful big bucks growing today. And uh, well, the uh, uh, hunting, um, the, the number of kills plummeted from about 25,000 to less than 3,000 after the wolves came. It's, that's roughly the... Uh, and the, uh, the the only reason that the uh, deer survive so well is because they are sitting in towns and suburbs and around farms where they're safe from wolves yeah. and from uh, in partially safe from cougars. Cougars tend to go in. And I know that because they're right around here where I, where I live. Mm-hmm. How how does this how is this going to affect the with with wolves where they're already established in in Alberta and in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and, and possibly into Colorado if that initiative gets passed uh, obviously like you said there, there's already a pack of wolves in Colorado and so that's the, right and, but what and, you're going to find inevitable. what you're going to find eventually is you're going to find most of the wildlife on private land. And what does that do to the North American model? And in, in, in other words, most of the public land filled with predators will become a predator pit, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> but the wildlife will remain, and it will remain on private land. So you're going to be going from a system of wildlife conservation that you have today with publicly owned wildlife, basically to a system where wildlife is controlled almost entirely by the whims of those that own the land and now control the wildlife. And why is that? You, what happens? Well, because it, quite, quite simply, what happens is that as long as you have uh, predators 
free to multiply as long as you have predators that uh, are being protected you will continue with a predator pit mm-hmm. that's Which, what we have in alaska and the alaska boys know it and it's rather acute to read that because they say well we have, we have so many of these areas uh, let's call them predator pit uh, right now we don't worry about them because uh, we still have enough hunting in other areas but if and when we need to open up more uh, land we know exactly what to do and that's of course control wolves and grizzly bears and how how do we convince these these folks that don't look at this data and this evidence well the only way that you can convince folks about this is when the uh, wildlife is so depleted that the wolves are moving into cities and so when you walk around the with your doggy then you come back with an empty leash that's really disheartening that's, that's the, right. Uh, you know, it's it's just. And the other thing is, other, the other thing is, which is experienced here, uh, which was so odd because I was so aware that wolves were so shy, and the wolves here, on Vancouver Island, the, the ones that, that came here, were bold, and uh, they were sitting and watching us. And, and then, of course, I started corresponding and speaking on the telephone with real wolf experts like Ludwig Carbin, a good friend of mine, who is the chief. Uh, the best wolf uh, specialist in, in Canada, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one was, of course, Eric Klinghammer of Wolf Park. Uh, so we were in very, very frequent communication. So I was being educated. The wolves are sight learners. They sit and watch and observe. And the way that they begin to target human beings is by just watching them for a long time. Then they get closer and closer and closer. And they examine them from close. I've had wolves here in Vancouver Island, walk to within 10 paces of me, then stand and just watch and then walk away. Okay? And they're just learning. That's right. They're learning. And then comes the next stage. And this was beautifully illustrated on an island about an hour and a half from where we are here, uh, Vargas Island. And this was a camping ground of uh, kayak um, enthusiasts. And two wolves showed up. <clears throat> and the wolves mingled with people. And, of course, they got fed. And then the wolves began to tug at the clothing of people, yeah? Mm-hmm. And they would lick the exposed skin of people. They're still exploring, you see? Yep. And then 14 days later, they attacked. The man was saved. He had 80 stitches. And by the way, those two wolves were filled to the hilt with fawns. They were not Meaning that they, it's not like they did this out of desperation, out of hunger or anything no, like no, that. No, no, they were not just, des- desperate. Yeah. They had learned and they were trying now to find out how that alternative prey that they had been licking and t- tugging the clothing off, how that tastes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they found out they were killed, mm-hmm. of course. And and you had, you had touched on it earlier. I'm really stuck on this issue of, of how we convince people that are so pro-wolf that they're blinded to the, the actual facts of, of and the consequences. The, well, let's uh, put it this way. There is an example that answers your question. Go to Banff National Park in Canada. Mm-hmm. Do you know what is the number one and number two spot of grizzly bear killings in North America? It's Where? Lake Louise yeah. in Banff National Park. And Banff National Park, that's the hotspot for the killing of grizzly bears. Why? Because the parks are so concerned that those hikers and environmentalists, whoever is there, will not be affected by the bears. And the reason why the bears are obnoxious in the park, I was treed 
in Bass National Park by Grizzly Bear, by the way. Really? So I've been through that experience. Yes, yeah. I've been through that experience. We've never had any problems with grizzly bears. Myself or my students, wherever uh, people were armed, grizzly bears learned superlatively well to avoid <clears throat> arrogant, uh, confident people. But when you are going around and you're uh, sh- uh, shaking in your boots when you see a grizzly bear and you have your little bells and so on and so forth by the environmentalists, well, the joke, of course, in the Banff National Park was, how do you distinguish um, the um, um, uh, fecal matter from a grizzly bear from a black bear? Oh, it's very simple. The grizzly bear will uh, smell of pepper and will have little bells in it. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the, park had to, the park had to respond because the grizzly bears were being uh, conditioned to people by photographers, for instance, for going after them. And then they turn around and try to find out what these people are all about. Then they're considered dangerous bears, dead. Well, okay? that, that happened in Yellowstone during the 1960s, didn't it? Well, the Yellowstone was a somewhat different situation. Yellowstone, it was another one of those. You see, the bear, by nature, <clears throat> cleans up the garbage that is left in the natural landscape. Mm-hmm. That's one of his ecological roles. But something dies there, he is there, and he cleans it up, and so on and so forth. Well, this is what he was doing, only the cleanup was the garbage that the uh, parks provided. And it generated for decades royal entertainment. I have seen it with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. I've seen what it was like in Banff National Park when uh, the bears were still being fed by the wardens in the, uh, at the garbage uh, dump. Yeah? Uh-huh. They were accumulating of people that were standing and we were all enjoying it very greatly. And then suddenly it was decided, oh, this is unnatural. <clears throat> this shouldn't really happen. Grizzly bears and bears should actually be eating natural foods and not the garbage that we offer them. Yeah. Sure. And so you destroyed a very good bear, bear population in uh, Yellowstone. Yeah. Okay. It's tremendous mortality set in. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That led to the what is now the recovery. Um, well, wh- that's. I mean, <clears throat> here you have something that was driven by environmentalists. Exactly. Exactly. They, they my thought point. They were, yeah. 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 And so, as clarification, no, so you don't. You don't convince them. They're they're totally convinced of their righteousness. Yeah, I agree. And I agree. It's the, such o- a the only thing. way. The only way that. Well, see, the tragedy was we were speaking about uh, wolves and humans, and I was asked by the family of Kenton Carnegie to investigate his death. Mm-hmm. He was a young man who was an environmentalist, a vegetarian, a first-rate student. He was on a scholarship, <clears throat> and he uh, was landed in northern uh, Saskatchewan temporarily on his way to Saudi Arabia to look at a mine. He was a a geologist and engineering uh, student, a bright, bright lad, wonderful young man. He got killed by wolves. He was killed by garbage wolves. Yeah. There were four of them that had been habituated to human beings because uh, they got fed every day the garbage from the kitchen of the camp. And they, uh, these wolves anticipated the coming of the truck. They ran right along beside the truck. And when the black bags came off, they ripped them to pieces and got inside of it. And then four days before they killed Kent and Carnegie, they attacked two people. One was a pilot. The other one was a geochemist. And the two young men, fortunately, were close to the edge of the uh, an airfield. They were actually going to look at a 
derelict airplane that was somewhere in, on that field, and they grabbed hold of some um, spruce, which they ripped out of the ground. In bog, this is so easy. Dead spruce come out very easily, so you have something like a club, and they beat back the wolves nicely, and then they photographed themselves with the wolves, because the wolves they were quite successful getting them back. And uh, they bragged with that, um, and Kenton Carnegie was aware of this. And uh, one of the residents who was uh, guiding in wintertime trucks along the ice roads in Saskatchewan said, for heaven's sake, you are lucky that you're alive, um, and for, don't even try to get close to these things. Well, anyway, and Kenton Carnegie walked out the back, uh, walked out the front door at about three o'clock, uh, four days later, said he would be back by six, and he wasn't, and he was, in the meantime, taken down by four wolves. And this was investigated by, um, uh, right away by two people that were highly qualified to do that. One was the coroner from the Wollaston, which is a little uh, city, it's a lady, mm-hmm. uh, a grandmother. <clears throat> she was raised in the bush till she was age 14, and she was taught about hunting, fishing, trapping by her father. She's an expert at that, and she's still teaching that to her, her children and other uh, children in, uh, because she became the, eventually the chief of the band there. And she was called in as a coroner. And the other one was a RCMP officer who had, was also a native who had been raised in the bush and was an expert tracker. Uh, these two investigated what has happened and left behind a wonderful report. And then came the tragedy that the coroner in Saskatchewan decided that uh, he didn't want that report. He wanted some real scientists to investigate. And that's where the dilemma began, because the real scientist they brought in was a, uh, a man I knew quite well, actually, uh, who had been studying wolves. And he came in and he right away proclaimed to the world that uh, the uh, Kenton Carnegie was killed by black bears. He wasn't killed by wolves. Hmm. And the mistake that he made was an elementary one. Uh, anyone who has worked in, the, in winter uh, in the Canadian north will know that if you walk across a lake, there are going to be overflows. The, the ice cracks, yeah, the ice moves and water comes to the surface through the cracks in the ice and stands underneath the snow blanket. So when you go along, you plop and you step into it, there's a hole and there's water in that hole. Yeah. Yep. It doesn't matter if it's a wolf or a human being when you walk across that. And what um, he was looking at was overflow uh, holes at the edge of the lake, and he thought those were bear uh, prints. They were not. They were quite normal wolf prints. Hmm. I mean, this is <clears throat> elementary. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So the tragedy was that right now there's a confusion that, oh, it was black bears that killed them. No, it wasn't. Not only those, those two uh, native people, but you see, again, here was a coroner in official position, denying what two native people, native people, yeah? mm-hmm, mm-hmm, one of which had two university degrees, okay? Yep. And the other one was a trained RCMP officer, yeah? And he denigrated them. <laughs> and the other thing was... The tragedy uh, of this what, whole thing is just... Well, it is tragic when we, uh, when we uh, do not listen to uh, people that we make the distinction that they're black or white or red or whatever it is, yeah, instead of looking at them as human beings. It goes back to what I was talking about in terms of how how a lot of this comes to uh, conclusions out of bias, and and that's that's why I like having you on the show, (laughs) because uh, (laughs) it's it's very fact-based, it's very evidence-based, and 
you know, as, as clarification, and this kind of leads into what you're talking about with, you know, the confusion between the wolves versus the black bear killing them. But going back to the predator pit, um, right. as, as clarification, it does not have to be grizzly bears that uh, maintain the predator pit. It can be black bears and mountain lions. Is that is that what you're, you were getting yes, at? Yes, yes. You have wonderful studies on that, for heaven's sake. This is available. Yeah. This is available to, to anybody, uh, and I have, as I said, I remember reviewing this right now in the paper together with a Russian colleague. <clears throat> but a lot of people and, don't read uh, those studies. You, you know, it's it's people like you and, and people thing, like me that that are that are you know we're interested in this and we want solutions. The first thing you have to do is to get the stuff down on paper, mm-hmm. because somebody else will look at it, and you have to present it as well as you can. You have to do the background uh, on this. And yes, we have to live by facts, what other people have observed, the, the logics that they uh, drew from it, and so on and so forth. Well, uh, we what has become so fashionable amongst the Greens <coughs> is what is called advocacy. Uh, they are firmly of the belief that human beings are evil, Mm-hmm. That uh, everything quotation mark natural is good, that you should let nature, nature uh, have its way. But you see, these are not beliefs based on a rational understanding of the ecology. They are simply semi-religious beliefs, which these people find themselves in agreement with others, and uh, they want to have a better world, and they think a better world is created by uh, denying humans. Mm-hmm. and by fostering wilderness. So, uh, therefore, we protect as much land. And you see, <clears throat> protection itself doesn't work. Now, yes. I know that because I have a colleague. Uh, let me uh, uh, add this one, which is a very good one. Um, Wildergarten from uh, uh, California. This gentleman took over um, 14 acres about 30 years ago. Uh, and then he um, examined the flora that was there. He found 60 plant species. When he began to restore this from the seeds that were in the soil as such, after these 30 years, he has wound up with, if I'm correct, about 235 native species and 135 non-native species. This is what a human being gets out of the soil that still contains the remnants of the former ecosystem. This is hands-on management, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is, and he is, of course, violently opposed to the stupidity of just simply uh, sitting there, uh, collecting your wages, and letting uh, nature have its course, because that's very destructive. Very. Yeah. The Deseret Rain ranches, for instance, which are owned by the by the Mormons, have done a very very nice job, by the way, of <coughs> melding the interest of wildlife and with ranching. They have marvelous uh, returns on wildlife. And as a matter of fact, I've just published a paper I've, that indicated that 40,000 years ago, when the first modern humans came into Europe, what they did was they practiced predator control. They increased their population tenfold over that of Neanderthal. They were beautifully developed people, phenotypically. They had brain sizes of about 1,500 cubic centimeters, which is 200 cc's bigger than ours today. Yeah? Hmm. 
Uh, yes, and they lived a peaceful life, which is another astonishing thing, for almost 25,000 years. Can you send me that and The paper? wolves at that time went into a predator, uh, pardon me, were in a genetic bottleneck. And a genetic bottleneck means that their numbers had plummeted. Yeah. And at the same time, compared to the earlier wolves, the wolves during this period, when the modern people were there, the upper Paleolithic, grew into giants. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You had the same thing. In other words, they first of all, they found a way to control wolves by using lions, by the way, as one of their means. Uh, it's astonishing uh, when you discover what relationships human beings can have with predators. Because uh, to give you one example, in, which is now gone, but it's only gone about 30 years, in the Kalahari Desert, there was a location where there was a... A group of people from a tribe living peacefully with a group of lions around a waterhole. And people and lions moved amongst themselves, and there was absolutely no problem. And the people say, Yeah, the lions protect us against hyena uh, and against leopards at night. So there was something there for them. Mm-hmm. And just as I indicated to you, the Tungus in Manchuria <clears throat> revered the tiger because the tiger is able to control wolves, and you have, with the control of wolves, some wildlife left. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, it was very, very likely that these people uh, that came into Europe about 40,000 uh, years ago or somewhat earlier <clears throat> learned how to use <clears throat> lions in helping them to control wolves. You control wolves by going and destroying, of course, dens. That's the first thing. But you can, you're not very successful about that because the... Um, uh, what they were living on was migratory reindeer, migratory uh, horses, migratory bison, migratory um, mammoths, and so on. These, these animals came out of the mammoth steppe, and human beings could not colonize the mammoth steppe because there was no wood there for burning. Hmm. So, <clears throat> yes, you can clean up wolves and uh, cave hyenas, but you cannot clean up the wolves that bear their young in the mammoth steppe. But you can get those wolves if you unite with lions. And lions love to ambush wolves. At least their counterpart in Africa, they love to ambush hunting dogs. And when they ambush hunting dogs, they kill them and they carry them around like trophies and then they drop them and they won't eat them. So it's just more of a Now, if you are able able to work with your lions and you hear wolves howling, what you can add to the system is your own howling. You can attract wolves into an ambush. Mm Mm-hmm. Alliance. That's hypothesis, of course. Yeah, sure. But it's very, very likely that it happened. Because, as I said, how else do you explain that people increase their biomass tenfold or more over that of the preceding Neanderthals? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, super interesting. Will you send me that paper? Well, well, yeah, it's available in short form in English, and it's now just came up in German, and already the next uh, journal is republishing it. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, listen, there's so many interests. Can you imagine that orcas, the killer whales, yeah, mm-hmm. cooperated in an Australian uh, village with fishermen that killed um, baleen whales? Yeah, I, so the I've orcas heard you talk notified the orcas notified the fishermen when the baleen whales arrived. Mm-hmm. They hunted together. The orcas even helped tow whales in after they were dead, and their reward was to eat the lips and the tongue of the baleen whale. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've heard you talk well, about that Well, wait a before. second. What about falconry? Yeah? 
Here we're using everything from uh, sparrowhawks to eagles mm-hmm. in the sport to kill birds. Yeah. Yep. It's another example where we may take good use of a carnivore. And what about dogs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a wolf that we tamed, 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 and eventually turned into a dog, a magnificent creation. Yeah. I love dogs, as I said. I'm addicted to dogs, and I'm very glad they're not wolves. <laughs> Me too. I've uh, I don't know where my dog is. He's usually my buddy in here in the studio, but uh, <laughs> I know their buddies. <laughs> I think I think he's outside enjoying the nice sunny weather we're having because uh, good we, for you. <laughs> we've got a lot of rain coming, but um, can I ask you as as we kind of wind this down here? Yes, please. Um, the in Canada and in America, we we put a high value on public land and and our and how we enjoy it and use it and utilize it and uh, for for a lot of us, public land is is a is a lifestyle. And I know that. I know that. Yeah, and I know that very very well. That's why. I- that's why we wrote the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. Exactly. So I, and I know yeah. I'm, I'm I'm preaching to the choir with this, but what what when when you get these predator pits on these public lands, I've heard you talk about how it devalues them uh, and devalues the the public land. And and then it's I felt like it was kind of like it wasn't really expanded upon. Can you expand on what uh, what happens with public land with predator pits? That devalues them, and why people need to pay attention to that because I think that that was a very important point you made, and there wasn't enough uh, conversation on that after. And I, I want to expand on that, and I, I, I'm trying well, to place where I put it heard this. it. Let me put you know, the greatest defenders of public lands are the hunters and fishermen, mm-hmm. because the environmentalists have the national parks. <clears throat> That's their domain. And they relish that domain, yeah? Yes. We don't go into national parks. We don't hunt and fish there. Yeah? No. Nope. And hunting and fishing depends on the availability of something to hunt and fish. And in the past, we've had that availability. And we also had the understanding that wildlife could be enjoyed by being taken in a hunt and eaten at home. And that's a wonderful, wonderful tradition, which we carried over from antiquity in the sense that your ancestors were were doing this. But when you have right now uh, movements like the vegans, for instance, Mm -hmm. which claim that uh, which have a very honorable uh, uh, beginning in the sense that they're trying to uh, alleviate the suffering of domestic animals. That I understand. But when you have vegans uh, there stating that uh, hunting is wrong because it kills animals, and we human beings are anyway by nature um, vegetarians, which is false, by the way, uh, then you, and this movement takes over, uh, then there is no value in wilder populations on public land. These people don't value them. In fact, in England, uh, some of the vegans said, we are out to destroy the deer in uh, England because that will kill hunting. And that's to them more important isn't than, that than having here living there. Stance? Man, yes, of a, course it is. Wow. But that is what you have, yeah? yeah and yeah. then you have already school teachers telling little children <clears throat> how evil humans are. They're overpopulating the earth. They're destroying the earth. And human beings uh, are no good. And nature is good. Let nature work. But you see, human beings 
can do the opposite, like my friend in California did in uh, <coughs> in his work. Yeah, mm-hmm. he restored beauty. He restored biodiversity. He brought it back, and that's what we have to do again in our national parks because they are being degraded through lack of attention to what is so important, namely of maintaining what is weak in these parks. And these are species that are disappearing because aggressive, um, invasive species take over. I just don't understand how these environmentalists and these vegans don't get that. I don't understand how they can go to Yellowstone uh, today. Well, uh, let, let, and, while we are at it, let's destroy a few things. Yeah. For instance, yeah, human beings arose as human beings very, very much as hunters. Very much as hunters. Yes. And they were quite destructive as hunters, unfortunately. And this is also part of our, of our uh, history. But um, what is the evidence, the hard evidence, that in our evolutionary history, we had to depend on animal uh, protein and on animal fat and on animals to survive? What did it leave in our body? Well, let's start the first thing. We have an enzyme called elastase, but which we digest elastin. Can you say that one more time? It's called what? Yeah, we, you and I, all human beings, Mm -hmm. have uh, by nature an enzyme in their bodies, which is called elastase. Elastase. And elastase uh, digests elastin, which is a um, part of a (coughs) part of what muscles are made out of. Yeah. It's a protein that is made only in animal tissue that is never found in plants. Yet we have an enzyme that digests specifically a tissue that only is found in animals. That gives you one hint. Uh-huh. Yep. The second hint is actually very cute. <clears throat> when you look at trans fats, and trans fats usually are made from hydrogenated um, oils, vegetable oils, and those trans fats are bad. Man, oh man, they mm-hmm. are rotten. They are very bad. Very bad for you. Uh, that's right. Now you go and look at the label of your butter, at your cheese, and what do you discover? There is a smidgen of trans fats in butter and in cheese and in all dairy products. Oh boy, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the following. It comes from a perfectly natural hydrogenation of fat in the rumen of cows, of sheep, of goats, and so on. They produce a natural trans fat. And now comes the miracle. You and I have an enzyme that specifically targets that trans fat and changes it into conjugated linoleic acid. Mm -hmm. See, this is the signature of evolution in our body. And the other one is, of course, vitamin B12. Vitamin B12 is found in animal sources. Which is... And the reason we are so deficient in it is because we depended so much on animal sources that we lost the capacity to produce it ourselves. So our beginning, when we began t- almost two million years ago in Africa, well, the first thing we did, we destroyed the big tortoises, yeah? Mm-hmm. Just turned them upside down, smashed them open, and away you go. You've got food available, Yeah. We destroyed the midsection of the predator guild so that only the biggest and the smallest survived. And then we started working on the um, proboscideans, the elephant types. And from some 20 species, we 
winnowed them down to two or so in Africa. Oh yes! Wow. We we are carnivores. We are we're sort we're of a oxymoron because we are a meat-eating herbivore, basically. Exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. But, yeah. <laughs> this is just yeah. fascinating information. <laughs> and so in, in, every time you come to su- to superior body growth, to superior development, think, for instance, what were these modern Europeans 40,000 years ago in which the males averaged over six feet or so, yeah, with tremendous brain sizes, bigger than ours, yeah, beautiful people. What were they eating? Meat. Primarily reindeer. Hmm. That goes. That that speaks so many. That could take us down to so many different directions too. But um, I I I can't express enough that this is a natural. It's a primal thing, and and I think that that's why that's people that are that are hunters like like you and I, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, with my family, I always hate to use the word depends. We don't depend on wild game. Uh, I we, we have the means but it's to a wonderful get other. Thing to have. It is, and and we live yeah. uh, 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 most of our life is 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 a you know it's it's focused and evolves around wild game and our and our pursuit for it. And and that's right. No, I understand that. So do I. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I'm looking forward to my hunting and fishing. And and it's just a, it's it's such an amazing thing when you bring all this data to the table, and and then you have this other side. They're they're. Life is based on emotional decisions versus uh, facts that is and evidence. Correct, and yeah. it, that's right. Yep. And they're also quite hostile, basically, to the idea of humans. Very yeah. hostile. <clears throat> well, we can be evil. There's no doubt about that at all. But we can also be saviors. We can be the other side, and that's what we'll have to be. Come, <clears throat> because as I said, the total protection of landscapes just simply leads to their deterioration. Yeah. We have to step in. And to restore them again. But that side of it, it sounds great at a at a, a you know a vegan cocktail party to talk about how evil the evils of human and mankind and the encroachment into the into the natural world and how we're killing oh, yeah. animals and things like that and, and and it's very emotionally based and and so that's that's why I think it's important for for folks like you and I to get together and have these conversations every once in a while to counter some of that uh, because they're very aggressive. They're very they're they're a lot more aggressive. Of course, against, I know they're aggressive. Yeah, you know that. And that's a pity. That's, yeah. that's, that's life. It is. Yeah. It is, and so that's that's why we do what we do. And well, it was uh, so nice. My um, my daughter-in-law um, was a vegetarian, mm-hmm. and then she said to me, "You know, if my dad had fried the steaks as well as you had, I would never have become a vegetarian." It's <laughs> uh, a great story. <laughs> So, Dr. Geist. Oh, she's a medical doctor and <laughs> has smashingly beautiful children. Good, good. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, this has been a great conversation, Dr. Geist. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and, uh, and sharing. You, you're just a wealth of information. Um, I, I feel unworthy uh, sometimes to have a conversation oh, with you. But <laughs> this is, oh, come now. This is, this is great. I'd love to have you on again. Um, how are things as as we wrap this up? How are things going for you with COVID nineteen up on Vancouver Island and and uh, well, COVID nineteen is of course a very real threat. <laughs> it has to be taken serious, no two ways about it. And uh, we are doing fairly well on the island. We are on the island that helps, mm-hmm. and uh, there is a minimum of it, fortunately, at the present time. But you have to you have to be alert about this. This is nothing to fool around with, particularly in my age because people over 80 are very likely to suffer 
severely. No, I'm fine, and Good. there's no problem along that that line. So the COVID is is being taken care of. Are you able but, to Are you able to hunt this year? Or? Well, yeah, of course. But my only trouble is that the we have had so many mountain lions here that I haven't been able to shoot a black-tailed deer now for two years. Oh, I normally okay. shoot two bucks a year for uh, meat. And it's just not... I, I shot a very lovely uh, white-tailed buck last year in um, Alberta, and I'm due to go hunting in Alberta again in about three or four weeks. Oh, good. So good. we'll have some meat. Any Any moose tag this year? Well, I don't know. Moose are so far down in British Columbia, uh, it's pathetic at the present time. Yeah. Pathetic because, well, we are twice the size of Sweden, and at the best of time, we killed about 8,000 moose, and the Swedes killed 80,000 oh, on wow. half the land. Holy cow. Yeah. That's oh. a big difference. Yeah. It is a big difference, right? Yeah, they're down here in Idaho as well. The the moose the moose populations oh God, have really but they won't, suffered. They won't be with your wolves around. Uh, it, well, that's what I'm but, saying. Yeah, because of the wolves, yeah, they, our, our numbers they, are pretty bad. They right virtually now. went extinct around the Yellowstone. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's it's sad. Uh, I, I used to enjoy, Fine. you know, just ten years ago. Ten years ago, yeah. uh, I I couldn't go elk or deer hunting without running into moose all over the place. And and now it's it's, it's uh, I get really excited when I see one because they're so rare. But you see, um, it's not an either-or, having wolves or having wildlife. What I experienced when I was a young man, <clears throat> we had magnificent wildlife populations, and we had wolves, and we had grizzly bears. And this is a great I point. know, because I had to climb a tree at one time when I left my <laughs> rifle behind. <laughs> and that's that's a great point, and that's what I want to get to, and let, let's conclude with that. Uh, let, okay. Let's conclude with the, the – that's a great – way to see it because I don't want somebody to listen to this and think, oh, well, you know, Jim over at the Western Huntsman and Dr. Geist, they just hate wolves. That's not the case. Uh, I love wolves. I I find them to be, they're, they're They're very, very interesting. And I observed them for many times. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. Oh God. fascinating creatures. I love, I love hearing them when I'm in the back country, unless I'm elk hunting. I don't like hearing them at that point, (laughs) but, um, I do like, I, I do like to hear them and see them and observe and, and, uh, they're, they're just amazing animals. So that, that's not the case at all, but there, there does need to be a high level of management and balance that we need to find. Uh, that has to be, that's right. And, it can be done. Yeah. And, and you, you have seen that, you've seen that balance and the balance comes through the management, uh, of man. Is that right? That's right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's our only hope. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Geist. Nature is not our hope. You got your it's same- our knowledge and our dedication. That yeah. is the hope. I, I agree. I, I agree. But you got your sink fixed, right? Plumbers are done Pardon over me? there. I, I says you got your sink fixed. Yes, I did. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> but we were talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my my phone was beeping there. And they did it with a smile. Oh, good, good. And uh, the, the the plumber was named Mr. Wolf as we were talking about wolves, so that was. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, this is great. I'm going to send you a T-shirt uh, for the Western Huntsman. Oh, thank you. And uh, I think. I, I wish you well on on your hunts this Thank this you. fall in in uh, Alberta. I'm I'm really jealous of of hunting whitetail in Alberta. Uh, just because oh, they're wonderful. Uh, that wonderful. Oh yeah, wildlife. and they're so big up there. Oh God, yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's on private land. Oh man, yeah. I'm I'm jealous. So I'm going to be watching. I want you to keep me posted on how that goes. Uh, that'll, that'll okay. Be great to see that unfold. But uh, thanks again for coming on, Dr. Geist. You're this most welcome. Wonderful, wonderful conversation, and I, I can't thank you enough. I'd love to do it again in the future. You're most welcome. So now we'll say goodbye. Sounds good. 
We'll say, we'll say goodbye, okay, and I'm going to send you an email. I, I'm going to need your mailing address so I can mail you the T-shirt. That's fine, and we'll, I'll respond. Okay, sounds great. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank you. You made it all the way to the end. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We sure appreciate your support. This is Jim Huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at Instagram at The Western Huntsman and on Facebook at The Western Huntsman. And you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.